Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Jerusalem was the center of the medieval world. It was a city sacred to three great religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. For centuries, Jerusalem had been ruled by the Roman Empire, then its successor in the east, the Byzantine Empire. In 637, during the flood tide of Islam's conquests, the city fell to Muslim armies. Muslims would rule the city for the next 460 years. Then a new power arrived before Jerusalem, a horde of armed pilgrims from Europe who had vowed to capture the holy city in exchange for forgiveness of their sins. They would come to be called Crusaders, or those who were signed by the cross. In 1099, the Crusaders took Jerusalem, pillaging the city and massacring its inhabitants. Jerusalem then became the capital of a European Christian realm planted in the heart of the Middle East. The Kingdom of Jerusalem was the largest and most powerful of four states founded by the Crusaders. The three others were the Principality of Antioch, the County of Tripoli, and the County of Edessa. These Crusader states fought fierce, endless wars against the neighboring Muslim powers. In time, a Muslim champion emerged, An-Nasir Saladin Yusuf ibn Ayyub, better known in the West as Saladin, was a Kurdish warlord, a ruthless politician, and an energetic soldier. He first welded Egypt, Syria, and northern Iraq into a single empire. He proclaimed himself the leader of a jihad, a Muslim holy war against the Crusader states. In 1187, he crossed the River Jordan and invaded the Kingdom of Jerusalem with a massive army of 40,000 men. Guy de Lusignan, newly crowned King of Jerusalem, raised a great host to confront Saladin. Practically every man in the kingdom who could bear arms joined his muster, and the Crusaders were further reinforced by a powerful spiritual weapon, the true cross on which Christ had been crucified. On July 3, 1187, in the blazing heat of midsummer, the Crusaders set off across the hills of Galilee to challenge the Muslims to battle. But at first, Saladin refused to take up the gauntlet. Instead, he sent his Turkic horsemen to harass the enemy. The Turks were expert riders and peerless archers. They raced up to the marching crusader ranks, loosed storms of arrows, then scattered and fled before the enemy knights could unleash one of their devastating charges. This relentless harassment went on all day and into the night, taking a steady toll of the crusaders and wearing down their morale. But Saladin's deadliest weapon was thirst. The Muslim warlord ordered all the springs and wells in the path of the crusaders destroyed. The crusaders grew increasingly parched as they struggled across the sere, sun-blasted landscape. The worst sufferers of all were the knight's horses. Many became too weak to carry their mail-clad riders. To increase his enemy's misery even further, Saladin commanded the dry grass and brush around the crusaders set ablaze. Then, as a final torment, the warlord had his soldiers pour out jars of water before the Christians' eyes. 
The next day, July 4, 1187, the Crusaders somehow struggled on until they reached the twin black hills called the Horns of Hattin. There, they were surrounded by their foes. At last, Saladin ordered his army to close in for the kill. The Crusaders did all they could to resist, and the desperate, confused fighting lasted until the early afternoon. At its end, the army of Jerusalem was completely wiped out. King Guy and many of the lords of Jerusalem were captured. The true cross fell into Saladin's hands. Even more importantly, after Hattin, the Crusaders' states lay completely open and defenseless. In the following months, city after city, castle after castle, fell to the Muslim armies. At last, on October 2, 1187, Saladin claimed the greatest prize of all, Jerusalem. Hattin was a great victory. Nevertheless, it fell short of being decisive. The Crusaders managed to cling to a handful of ports on the coasts of Palestine and Syria. These ports provided bases and gateways for new Crusader armies coming from Europe. In 1191, the Third Crusade brought to the Middle East the hosts of the most powerful monarchs in Christendom, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, King Philip Augustus of France, and King Richard the Lionheart of England. The Third Crusade rescued the Crusader states from annihilation. It also initiated a new phase of holy war that would last until 1291. Hattin is one of the best-known battles of the Crusades. The Crusades themselves are the most famous event of the Middle Ages. They are also the most misunderstood. Even worse, the Crusades are misused by powerful and influential people in both West and East to reinforce their ideologies, advance their political agendas, and justify their actions. Far too often, these abuses of the Crusades have resulted in the deepening of present-day hatreds. In this episode of the podcast, I will be presenting a rigorous historical account of the Battle of Hattin and the Crusades, one that carefully places these events in the context of their places and times. As we'll see, such an account is the most effective antidote to all the misconceptions and distortions afflicting modern views of the Crusades. The Crusades involved three civilizations, Latin Christendom, Byzantium, and Islam. The weakest and poorest of the three was Latin Christendom, Western Europe. It had emerged after the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. By the 11th century, it was divided into numerous petty kingdoms and lordships, all of which were governed by warrior aristocrats. The only institution found everywhere and could thus serve as a source of shared identity was the church, which used Latin as a common language and was headed by the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, whose authority, while ill-defined, was universally accepted as final in all spiritual matters. The oldest of the three civilizations was Byzantium. It was the eastern half of the Roman Empire, which had continued after the imperial collapse in the West. At its height, ruling the Balkans, southern Italy, Sicily, Greece, Anatolia, or modern-day Turkey, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and North Africa, Byzantium remained a centralized state ruled by the emperors from their magnificent capital of Constantinople. Byzantium was politically Roman, culturally and linguistically Greek, and religiously Christian, but of a kind that was diverging sharply from that of Western Europe. In 1054, 
the Byzantine and Latin churches split openly and bitterly in the Great Schism. By far the most powerful, wealthy, and sophisticated civilization was Islam. In the 7th century, the successors of the Prophet Muhammad erupted out of Arabia and embarked on a spectacular career of conquest. The warriors of Islam were inspired by the doctrine of jihad, which imposed a sacred duty on them to conquer the Dar al-Harb, the world outside the true faith. By the 11th century, Islam encompassed a vast realm, stretching from Spain to the borders of China and from Sudan to the depths of the Eurasian steppes. During its heyday, the Muslim conquest had reached Europe. In the 9th century, Muslim forces conquered Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica, and the Balearic Islands. The powerful Aglabid emirs of Tunisia and Sicily went on to attack southern Italy. In 847, Muslim warriors burned St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. Afterward, they established bases on the Garigliano River, just 100 kilometers from the seat of Latin Christendom, and forced the popes to pay them tribute. Other Muslims lodged themselves in southern France. Today, Saint-Tropez is one of the beauty spots of the French Riviera, a playground for the jet set and a port of call for super yachts. In the 10th century, Saint-Tropez harbored the galleys of Muslim corsairs, who raided Christian coasts far and wide, pillaging settlements and taking captives to be sold in the teeming slave markets of the Maghrib, Muslim North Africa. It was Spain that saw the most spectacular and longest-lasting of all Muslim conquests. In 711, an army of Arab and Berber soldiers crossed the narrow straits separating Africa from Europe. Nearby Gibraltar is named after the Muslim general Tariq ibn Ziyad. They conquered all of Iberia, save for a handful of beleaguered Christian enclaves in the northern mountains of the peninsula. Al-Andalus, Muslim-ruled Spain, became one of the brightest jewels of the Islamic world. In 732, a Muslim army crossed the Pyrenees and raided deep into France. It was defeated outside Poitiers by the Frankish warlord Charles Martel. The victory at Poitiers halted Muslim expansion beyond Iberia, but Al-Andalus remained a dangerous threat. In the 10th century, Muslim armies assailed the petty Christian kingdoms of northern Spain and sacked the shrine of St. James of Compostela. In the end, though, Europe was simply too poor, too primitive, and too remote for the rulers of Islam to devote the time, energy, and resources required for its complete conquest, particularly when wealthier and more advanced parts of the world still remained. Nevertheless, in the words of John France, one of the leading historians of the Crusades, these assaults embedded in Western consciousness a real fear of Islam as an alien, aggressive, and deeply threatening religion, some sort of menacing paganism or monstrous perversion of Christianity whose success challenged the one true faith. Yet the main victim of the Islamic expansion was Byzantium. When the followers of Muhammad first burst out of the Arabian Peninsula after 632, they conquered all of the Byzantine provinces in the Middle East and North Africa. Muslim armies twice besieged Constantinople in 674 to 678 and 718. On both occasions, the Byzantines were only able to repulse them through the employment of a devastating secret weapon, Greek fire. Afterward, 
the Byzantine Empire managed to cling on to its core territories in Anatolia and the Balkans. In the 10th and 11th centuries, Byzantine power even revived, driving back the Muslims into the Middle East. After 1050, the Byzantines faced a new threat, the Seljuk Turks. The Turks are one of the major protagonists in the story of the Crusades. We'll learn more about them later in this podcast. The Seljuks renewed the Muslim assault on Byzantium. In 1071, they defeated the Byzantines at the Battle of Manzikert and captured the Emperor Romanus IV. In the years that followed, the Turks overran much of Anatolia, Byzantium's principal source of money and military manpower. During the 9th and 10th centuries, Western Europe grew stronger. The great kingdoms of England, France, and the Holy Roman Empire, today's Germany, slowly took shape. The Muslim outposts in France and Italy were destroyed. Adventurer knights from Normandy conquered Muslim Sicily. In Iberia, the Christians began the Reconquista, the long process of driving back the Muslims, which only concluded in 1492. At the same time, the popes began to assert their authority as spiritual leaders of Latin Christendom. The Byzantines looked to the stronger and more confident Western Europe for help against the revived Muslim threat represented by the Seljuk Turks. In 1074, in the wake of the disaster of Manzikert and the Turks' capture of Jerusalem, Pope Gregory VII planned to personally lead to the east an army of soldiers of Christ. Although Gregory's plans came to nothing, a principle had been established that it would be the popes who would inspire expeditions to the east. The event that would spark the First Crusade was a meeting in 1095 between Pope Urban II and ambassadors from the Byzantine Emperor Alexius Komnenus. The Byzantine envoys asked Pope Urban to persuade European lords to fight in the imperial army. Urban, one of the most important of medieval pontiffs, transformed the simple request into an idea that had far-reaching and momentous consequences nothing less than a Christian doctrine of holy war. Urban based this new doctrine on two existing concepts. One was the pilgrimage. Christians had long believed that a journey to a holy shrine was an act of penance for sins. A pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the most sacred place of all, was particularly special and efficacious. It served as penance for all of the sins that a person might have committed. Even after Muslims had conquered Jerusalem in 637, Christians continued to journey there. The year 1000, the millennium of the birth of Christ, had seen huge numbers of Latin Christians make the Jerusalem pilgrimage. 33 years later, on the millennium of Christ's passion, even larger numbers of pilgrims had set out for the East. Urban's second concept was sacred violence, which held that violence against non-Christians was not only permissible, but actually a positive and worthwhile act if done for and in the name of Christ. Pope Urban had first come up with the idea of sacred violence when he sought to help the Christians of Spain against the Muslims of Al-Andalus. In 1089, he wrote to some of the Spanish lords, offering the full remission of penance normally attached to the Jerusalem pilgrimage if these lords fought to take the Muslim city of Tarragona. 
we beg all who may be going to Jerusalem or other places in penance and devotion that they should expend all that they have saved for their journey on the restoration of the city of Tarragona, so that with God's aid it may have a bishop and cathedral, and its people may be protected from the Saracens by a wall and forewall. To such people we promise all that was offered to them for going to more distant places. On November 27, 1095, at Clermont, in central France, Pope Urban proclaimed a crusade for the first time. Merging the two concepts of pilgrimage and sacred violence, he appealed for a great expedition to set out to aid the Christians of the East and to retake Jerusalem from the infidels. According to the priest Fulker of Chartres, who participated in the First Crusade and wrote an important history of it, these were Urban's words. Freshly quickened by the divine correction, you must apply the strength of your righteousness to another matter which concerns you as well as God. For your brethren who live in the East are in urgent need of your help, and you must hasten to give them the aid which has often been promised them. For, as the most of you have heard, the Turks and Arabs have attacked them and have conquered the territory of Romania as far west as the shore of the Mediterranean and the Hellespont, which is called the Arm of St. George. They have occupied more and more of the lands of those Christians and have overcome them in seven battles. They have killed and captured many and have destroyed the churches and devastated the empire. If you permit them to continue thus for a while with impunity, the faithful of God will be much more widely attacked by them. On this account, I, or rather the Lord, beseech you as Christ's heralds to publish this everywhere and to persuade all people of whatever rank, foot soldiers and knights, poor and rich, to carry aid promptly to those Christians and to destroy that vile race from the lands of our friends. I say this to those who are present. It is meant also for those who are absent. Moreover, Christ commands it. To anyone who went on the journey, the Pope offered full remission of sins. Urban II's appeal created, according to John France, a new path to heaven, salvation through slaughter. The Pope's call to crusade was met with an enthusiasm beyond all his expectations. What, at the time, was dubbed the expedition of the Christian people desiring to go to Jerusalem amounted to an army of some 60,000 fighting men as well as vast numbers of non-combatants from all groups of European society. The fighting corps of the army was provided by the European warrior nobility. Preoccupied by their struggles and rivalries, no kings took up the cross. The crusader host nevertheless enjoyed excellent leadership thanks to numerous talented and battle-hearted lords in its ranks. What motivated the crusaders? One view, prevalent since the Enlightenment, has been that the crusaders' expressions of piety, self-sacrifice, and love of God were mere window-dressing, concealing baser, more material motives. According to this view, in 11th century Europe, a combination of overpopulation, changes to inheritance customs, and poor harvests had created a horde of landless second sons. These well-armed, unruly young nobles represented a dangerous threat to the peace of Christendom. Urban II conceived of the crusade as a way for these warrior nobles to go to the east to plunder and carve out domains for themselves in Muslim lands. Forty years of research have demolished this view. The knights and lords who joined the crusade, scholars have discovered, were generally wealthy men who already possessed or stood to inherit considerable lands in Europe. Moreover, 
going on the crusade was an exorbitantly expensive proposition. Scores of charters from 1095 and 1096. A charter was a kind of medieval property deed or financial transaction record show entire noble families going deeply into debt in order to equip their menfolk for the expedition. For the vast majority of those taking part, the crusade was hardly a profit-making venture. To discover and understand the crusaders' true motives, we need to take Pope Urban's words and their appeal seriously. The Pope offered four powerful reasons to take up the cross. The first reason was to act with Christian charity by rescuing fellow Christians from the Muslim threat. In the words of Jonathan Riley Smith, crusading was an act of love done for one's neighbor. The second reason was to return to Christian control Jerusalem and the other places made holy by the life of Christ. The armed pilgrimage to the East was therefore viewed by its participants not as a campaign of conquest, but one of restoration. The third reason was to fight in a godly cause for both spiritual and earthly rewards. European nobles pursued warfare as a way of life. Their domination of their societies was based on their capacity for violence. Pope Urban was giving nobles an opportunity to exercise violence for a sacred purpose. Moreover, if the expedition succeeded because of their efforts, they would receive a profound spiritual reward the forgiveness of all their sins. At the same time, Urban did not condemn the warrior's acquisition of glory and booty while on crusade. These were understood as rightful compensation for righteous action. The inextricable intertwining of the sacred and profane was expressed in the crusader's rallying cry during the key battle of Doriliam. Stand fast altogether, trusting in Christ and in the victory of the Holy Cross. Today, please God, you will all gain much booty. The fourth and final reason offered by the Pope was to strike back at the Muslims. Urban's rhetoric played on the hatred and fear of Islam that had become embedded in the culture of the European warrior class by centuries of Muslim attacks. Thus, European Christians were fired by religious enthusiasm to take up the cross and join the crusade. And this enthusiasm led to astonishing feats and spectacular triumphs. In an arduous three-year campaign, the army of pilgrims traversed more than 2,700 kilometers from Western Europe to Jerusalem. They marched through unknown, hostile country without sure sources of supplies. In numerous desperate battles and sieges, they defeated the forces of three of the greatest Muslim powers of the day the Seljuk Turks of Anatolia, the Sultanate of Baghdad, and the Fatimid Caliphate of Egypt. Most miraculously of all, in the eyes of the pilgrims, they succeeded in their ultimate goal. On July 15, 1099, they captured Jerusalem itself. The religious enthusiasm of the first crusaders had its dark side. While on their way to join the crusader army, Several contingents of warriors attacked, plundered, and destroyed Jewish communities in western Germany. These knights and lords seem to have regarded the Jews as enemies of God, just like the Muslims, and considered their destruction as part of Urban's plan. When Jerusalem fell, the Crusaders carried out a dreadful massacre of its Muslim and Jewish inhabitants. This massacre, too, was seen as part of the pilgrimage's mission. In a vivid description of this terrible event, a priest on the crusade rejoiced in the bloodshed. 
So let it suffice to say this much at least, that in the temple and porch of Solomon, men rode in blood up to their knees and bridle reins. Indeed, it was a just and splendid judgment of God that this place should be filled with the blood of the unbelievers, since it had suffered so long from their blasphemies. The city was filled with corpses and blood. After the taking of Jerusalem, most of the survivors of the First Crusade, having fulfilled their pilgrimage, returned to Europe but a few remained behind to establish European-ruled realms in Palestine and Syria. There were four of these crusader states, the county of Edessa, the principality of Antioch, the county of Tripoli, and the kingdom of Jerusalem. These states were often collectively called Outremer, overseas in French. They were greatly unequal in power and importance, straddling the headwaters of the Euphrates, remote, landlocked, and settled by very few crusaders, Edessa was the weakest of the four. Tripoli was also a minor state, amounting to little more than the coastal strip around the great port city of Tripoli itself. The Principality of Antioch was more powerful and long contested the control of northern Syria. The city of Antioch had been a great metropolis of the ancient world. In the 11th century, it still had a population of over 40,000. But Antioch often faced not just Muslim, but also Byzantine and Armenian hostility. The strongest and most important of the Crusader states was Jerusalem. From north to south, the Kingdom of Jerusalem extended from Beirut to the fortress of Gaza on the frontiers of Egypt. The heart of the kingdom was of course Jerusalem, with its sacred places, foremost among them the Church of the Holy Sepulchre built on the sites of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, and the Temple of the Lord, formerly the Muslim shrine of the Dome of the Rock. Yet Jerusalem was largely a court city and a sacred center. Its physical extent was modest, and its inhabitants numbered just 10,000. Even when swelled by the thousands of pilgrims who visited each year, this population was far smaller than the crusader metropolises of Antioch, Tripoli, and Acre. To the west of the holy city spread the coastal plain of Palestine. The plain was densely inhabited and heavily farmed. One of the most important crops was sugarcane, which the Jerusalemites exported to Europe for a handsome profit. The plain was thickly carpeted by rural settlements and latticed by roads that carried a constant traffic of traders and pilgrims. Along the shore of the Mediterranean was a chain of port cities, Sidon, Tyre, Haifa, Jaffa, and above all, Acre. Situated on the finest harbor of the Palestinian coast, Acre was the Kingdom of Jerusalem's chief port and commercial emporium. Crammed into a peninsula jutting out into the sea, the city was overcrowded and polluted. In the 1180s, the Spanish Muslim traveler Ibn Jubair visited Acre and was repulsed by its filthiness. Yet the city was a vital node linking Europe with the Silk Road trade. Its streets hummed with commerce and industry. During the sailing season, its great harbor was crammed with round ships. Even in times of war, business hardly slackened, as Muslim merchants continued to stream in and out of Acre's gates. The Kingdom of Jerusalem's eastern frontier generally ran along the Jordan River, but south of the Dead Sea, the great fiefdom of Outre-Jordan reached far to the east, into the pale hills of Moab. Outre-Jourdan's mighty castles of Montréal and Kerak acted as buttresses against Muslim assault. 
These castles also allowed the lords of Outre-Jordan to raid the vital caravan routes connecting Egypt and Syria. A long-standing view of the Crusader states, and one that remains widespread even now, was that they were European colonies planted in the middle of the Muslim world. Thus, their societies were characterized by a small stratum of Christian Crusader conquerors ruling over a vastly larger and heavily oppressed population of Muslim peasants. But recent research has shown that this view seems derived from and is much more applicable to 19th and 20th century European imperialism than to the situation actually pertaining in the Kingdom of Jerusalem. At the arrival of the First Crusade, the populations of Syria and Palestine were still largely made up of native Christians. The Muslim conquests of the 7th century had not been accompanied by the imposition of mass conversion. Although more heavily taxed by their Muslim rulers, native Christians were permitted to keep their religion. So while many natives did convert to Islam, most did not. The Crusader states were therefore home to Christians belonging to a dizzying variety of Eastern denominations. Greek Orthodox, who often spoke Arabic, Jacobites, Armenians, Copts, Nestorians, Maronites, and Ethiopians. These Eastern Christians willingly transferred their political allegiances to the Crusader newcomers. Furthermore, during the 12th century, a constant stream of Europeans came to settle in Outremer. Beginning in the 1990s, archaeological breakthroughs have provided compelling evidence that European settlement in the Crusader states was far more extensive and involved far larger numbers of people than once believed. The settlement effort began during the earliest days of the Crusader states. In 1100, Duke Godfrey, first ruler of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, granted a huge swath of land north of the city to the monks of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The grant included 21 villages for the settlement of soldiers of the First Crusade who had decided to remain in Utremer. By the middle of the 12th century, the largest of these villages, Magna Mahomera, had a population of 600, the result of both natural growth and the arrival of newcomers from Europe. According to the Israeli geographer Ronnie Ellenblum, some 235 European rural settlements have been identified in the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Although always remaining a small slice of the population, European immigrants represented an important source of support for Jerusalem's kings. It appears then that the population of the Kingdom of Jerusalem was significantly, perhaps even majority Christian. Moreover, the various Christian communities tolerated and cooperated with each other to a very high degree. We shouldn't mistake the Crusader states for a 21st century religious and cultural melting pot. Rather, a situation of rough toleration existed in which the Christian denominations agreed not to make much of their doctrinal differences and just rub along together. In such an environment, the European settlers were able to integrate themselves with the native Eastern Christians. One important vehicle of integration was intermarriage, which began right at the top. King Baldwin II of Jerusalem married an Armenian princess, Morphia of Melitene. Within a generation or two of coming to the East, most European settler families would have been mixed race. In addition, European settlers adopted the dress, diet, and habits of the native inhabitants of Utremer. The result was the creation of a new culture that mixed Western European values, practices, and customs with local ones. As Fulker of Chartres puts it, We, who are Westerners, have now become Easterners. 
We have already forgotten the places of our birth. Already, these are unknown to many of us or not mentioned anymore. Some have taken wives, not only of their own people, but Syrians or Armenians or even Saracens who have obtained the grace of baptism. People use the eloquence and idioms of diverse languages in conversing back and forth. Words of different languages have become common property, known to each nationality, and mutual faith unites those who are ignorant of their descent. He who was born a stranger is now as one born here. He who was born an alien has become as a native. European pilgrims who visited the kingdom of Jerusalem immediately noticed the profound changes in the settlers. In fact, These visitors feared that by going native, particularly intermarrying with the locals, the settlers were becoming corrupted by the decadent Middle East. Western Europeans took to calling the European settlers of the Crusader states Pulani or Pulain, meaning colts, which possibly referred to the product of a mixed marriage. As for the Muslims of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, they appeared to have largely accepted Christian rule. They were mostly peasants who were not much concerned with the religion of their lords, so long as they were left to fend for themselves. The Christian kings and lords of Jerusalem allowed the Muslims to keep their religion and run their communities as they saw fit, so long as they paid rent and taxes. From the foundation of the Christian kingdom of Jerusalem in 1099 to the Battle of Hattin in 1187, there appeared to have been only a single instance of a large-scale Muslim uprising against Christian rule. In 1113, following a heavy defeat suffered by the army of Jerusalem at the hands of the forces of the Sultan of Baghdad, but this insurrection was put down and normal relations restored. Ibn Jubair, the Spanish Muslim traveler who visited Jerusalem in the 1180s, was appalled to observe that the local Muslim peasants enjoyed a relaxed and respectful relationship with their Christian overlords. I'd like to pause for a moment and just make a note concerning terminology. The Byzantines and Muslims called the European Christians of Utremer, regardless of actual European ethnic origin, Franks, in Arabic, Firanji or Ifranji. We'll follow their practice and call all European Christians of the Crusader states Franks. The success of the First Crusade and the creation of the Crusader states embedded crusading in the consciousness of Latin Christendom. The persistent importance of crusading was most clearly manifested by the birth and spectacular rise of the military orders of the temple and the hospital. Today, the Hospitallers, and especially the Templars, are shrouded by an almost impenetrable fog of half-truths, myths, and outright fabrications. They become fodder for hordes of hack writers and holy grail conspiracists. In reality, the Hospitallers and Templars were knight monks, fighting men who swore to defend the Crusader states against the infidel, and who also subjected themselves to the monastic vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. The Templars traced their origins to the second decade of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, when a band of nine pious knights, led by Hugh de Payen and Godfrey de Saint-Omer, committed themselves to protecting pilgrims traveling the dangerous, bandit-infested roads between the Palestinian coast and the city of Jerusalem. In 1119, the King of Jerusalem granted them quarters in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which the Crusaders believed was the site of the biblical Temple of Solomon. This grant gave the knights their collective name, the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon. 
the Fraternal Order of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem had been founded in the 11th century by Italian merchants. The order's initial purpose was to provide hospitality to pilgrims at its great hospital in Jerusalem. Soon after the Crusaders captured Jerusalem, the hospital began to fund and take part in military activities. By 1136 at the latest, the Hospitallers had made the transition to a fully-fledged fighting order. The Templars and Hospitallers immediately gained enormous prestige and fame. We could almost think of them as the celebrities of the 12th century. They also became enormously wealthy. All over Christendom, kings, princes, lords, and even common folk rushed to bequeath land and riches to the knight monks. The two orders both came to possess enormous estates across Europe. The order's land holdings have left their marks on the cityscapes of Europe's great capitals. In London, the temple, the center of the English legal profession, is named after the church built in 1185 by the Templars. The original temple church itself is round, in imitation of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Similarly, in Paris, the Rue du Temple, which runs through the chic Marais neighborhood, was originally the main thoroughfare of the Quartier du Temple, the former domain of the Templars in the city. The ascendancy of the Hospitallers and Templars was confirmed by their acquisition of papal immunity, which meant that they obeyed not the secular rulers of the Crusader states, but the Pope. In effect, the orders became independent states within states. As we'll see, the armies and castles of the Temple and the Hospital were critical to the defense of Outremer. From our present-day perspective, and knowing the ultimate failure of the Crusades, the Crusader states seem like isolated and beleaguered European outposts strung along the Mediterranean shore. But for medieval Europeans, they were the earth on which Christ had walked, the homelands of Christianity now restored to the faithful. The Crusader states were the Holy Land, and the Holy Land needed to be defended against determined and deadly enemies. The most significant reason for the success of the First Crusade was Muslim disunity. From 750 to the 10th century, the Empire of Islam had been ruled by the caliphs of the Abbasid family, the commanders of the faithful and the descendants of Muhammad, who wielded spiritual and secular authority and maintained a glorious court in Baghdad. During the 10th century, however, the Abbasids' grip on their enormous realm had faltered. Beginning in the empire's outlying areas, governors of provinces and cities asserted their independence from Baghdad. At the same time, the Abbasid family frequently fell into feuding and civil war over the issue of succession to the caliphate. By 1050, the Abbasid caliphs had dwindled to little more than figureheads, dominated by their courtiers, and their rule extended barely beyond the surroundings of Baghdad. As Abbasid power waned, a rival caliphate emerged. The Fatimids, followers and champions of the Ismaili branch of Shia Islam, the Fatimids emerged in the Maghrib, Muslim North Africa, at the beginning of the 10th century. In 969, they seized control of Egypt, one of the wealthiest and most populous parts of the Islamic world. The Fatimids then expanded into Palestine, capturing Jerusalem in 969. Until 1099, they fought fiercely with the Sunni Muslim powers for control of the Middle East. But another, and even more consequential result of the decline of the Abbasid caliphs was the eruption into the Islamic world of a powerful new force, the Turks. 
nomads from the steppes, the vast belt of grasslands that covered Eurasia from Hungary to Korea, the Turks were matchless horsemen and magnificent fighting soldiers. The Muslims had first encountered them when they reached the Eurasian steppes during Islam's great age of expansion. Impressed by the Turks' prowess, the caliphs recruited them as Mamluks, or slave soldiers. Beginning with the caliph al-Mutazim, who reigned from 892 to 902, Turkic Mamluks formed the cutting edge of the Abbasid armies. Al-Mutazim constructed a palace complex at Samara, near Baghdad, as a barracks for these elite troops. Every power of the Muslim world rushed to copy the caliphs by taking some Turks into their service. In the 10th century, the Turks began moving in great numbers from the steppes and into the settled lands of the Islamic world. Exactly why this great migration occurred is unclear. One theory is that the Turks were driven south by climate change. Cooling temperatures on the steppes forced the nomads to seek warmer lands with better pastures for their herds. Most Turks were only newly converted to Islam. Many were still pagans. In language, appearance, and customs, the Turks were almost as alien to the Arabs and the other native peoples of the Islamic world as the European Franks. The Crusades are therefore the story of two different sets of invaders of the Middle East, the Crusaders and the Turkic nomads. The Turks first carved out dominions in the east of the Islamic world, the Karakhanids in Central Asia and the Ghaznavids in Afghanistan and the borderlands of India. In the middle of the 11th century, a loose federation of Oguz Turk tribes and war bands under the leadership of the Seljuk family conquered the region of Khorasan in eastern Iran. The Seljuk warlord Tugril Bey recognized the weakness at the heart of Islam. He led his followers westward, conquering the rest of Iran and then Iraq. In 1055, with the assistance of the Turkic Mamluk warriors already there, Tugril seized control of Baghdad and reduced the Abbasid Caliph to a religious figurehead under his control. For himself, Tugril took the title of Sultan, or Power. With the establishment of the Seljuk Sultanate of Baghdad, the Middle East and Anatolia lay open to Turkic invasion. Turkic tribes, some only loosely under Seljuk control, poured into the Anatolian provinces of the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine effort to stop them led to the disastrous defeat of Manzikert at the hands of Tugril's successor, Alp Arslan, in 1071. Other Turks pushed into Syria and Palestine. In 1073, a vassal of the Seljuks, Atsiz, captured Jerusalem from the Fatimids of Egypt. For the next nine centuries, until the fall of the Ottoman Empire in 1919, the Middle East and Anatolia would be ruled by Turks. During the 1070s and 1080s, the Seljuks created an empire that stretched from Anatolia to the borders of China. But this empire was never a centralized state. The Seljuk sultans parceled out their vast realm to their emirs, their leading Turkic generals and commanders, in the form of Iktas. An Ikta was a territory that an emir governed in the name of the sultan and from which the emir had the right to appropriate taxes. The sultans retained ultimate control of the Iktas and were able to reassign them to new holders at will and at any time. In 1092, the Seljuk Empire fell into crisis as the death of Sultan Malik Shah sparked a ruinous civil war of succession among various Seljuk Maliks, or princes. 
These princes fought each other for possession of the Seljuk core territories around Baghdad and in Iran. Syria and Palestine became a neglected region, just one frontier among many. With the retreat of the Sultan's power and authority, the Seljuk Amirs usurped control of their Iqtas. In effect, they became independent warlords controlling their own mini-states. The goal of the warlords became the preservation or expansion of their new domains. Their main opponents were other warlords. In such circumstances, the Turkic warlords were unwilling or unable to present a united front against invaders. The Fatimids of Egypt took advantage of the fragmentation of the western provinces of the Seljuk Empire by retaking Jerusalem in 1098. But the main beneficiaries of Seljuk fragmentation were the Crusaders, who captured Jerusalem less than a year after the city had fallen to the Fatimids. After the formation of the Crusader states, the Turkic warlords became the most dangerous enemies of the Franks. The Emirates of Aleppo and Damascus bordered the Principality of Antioch and the Kingdom of Jerusalem, respectively. The Turkic tribes of the Jazeera, the region between the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, menaced the county of Edessa. Further east, the city of Mosul became the center of another warlord state that would be active in fighting the Franks. The power of the warlords was based on their command of armies of Turkic horse archers. The Turks were products of a military system vastly different from that of their Frankish enemies or even the Arab Muslims. Christendom and Islam were both sedentary agricultural societies in which the overwhelming mass of people had to devote their time and labor to growing food. In such societies, warriors were either part-time militiamen who were only able to leave their farms for a limited period, or a small elite supported by the work of everyone else. In the steppe nomad society of the Turks, every man was potentially a warrior. Moreover, the rigors and requirements of everyday life on the steppe made the Turks natural fighters. The aridity and harsh climate of the Eurasian steppes make them inimical to agriculture, but suitable for the raising and herding of animals, such as sheep, goats, and above all, horses. The native inhabitants of the steppe became nomadic pastoralists who herded their livestock from pasture to pasture. Male nomads learned to ride in childhood and then spent most of their adult lives on horseback. Horsemanship therefore became second nature. Nomads had to drive, control, and guard their herds of hundreds, if not thousands, of animals. They also supplemented herding with hunting. Herding and hunting were both communal activities that taught nomads discipline as well as acting in coordinated groups. Finally, violence was a feature of everyday life on the steppe, as bands and clans raided each other's herds as well as tried to take over pastures. The life skills developed by these practices and experiences translated almost seamlessly into warfare. Turkic nomads needed little formal training to turn them into soldiers. The nomads' everyday gear was also superbly suited for war. The nomads' mount, the steppe horse, was smaller and lighter than the war horses bred by sedentary societies. But it was also fast, highly maneuverable, possessed enormous stamina, and could subsist entirely on grass. Traditionally, steppe nomads employed strings of horses to give them sustained speed and extended endurance in battle. Huge numbers of horses were a trademark of the Mongol armies of Chinggis Khan and his successors. However, neither Christian nor Arab Muslim sources mention Turkic warriors having several horses. 
Perhaps the more limited grazing lands available in the Middle East reduced the number of mounts each nomad could employ at a time. The nomad's main weapon was one of the deadliest of the pre-gunpowder age, the composite recurve bow, sometimes simply called a horse bow. The nomad's bow was made from animal sinew glued to a wood core, in turn glued to an inner layer of horn. The bow itself was short and curved opposite to the draw. This combination of geometry and materials made for a bow of unparalleled power that was short enough to be used on horseback. Historians estimate that the Nomad Composite Recurve Bow had a draw of 100 to 130 pounds and a range of 300 to 500 meters. Nomads learned to use the bow as boys, then practiced continually with it. In the 2nd century, the Chinese historian Sima Qian observed that among the steppe people called the Xiongnu, the little boys start out by learning to ride sheep and shoot birds and rats with a bow and arrow, and when they get a little older, they shoot foxes and hares, which are used for food. As a result of this lifelong practice, nomads could shoot arrows rapidly and with lethal accuracy while riding their horses at full gallop. Some texts suggest that nomad archers shot their arrows at the precise moment when all four of their galloping horses' hooves were in the air, thus ensuring their aim would not be thrown off by their mount's movements. Arab observers were enormously impressed by Turkic archery. Some peoples of the Middle East, including the Arabs, had a tradition of horse archery. However, Middle Eastern archers shot while their mounts were either stationary or walking. Not so the Turks. In the 9th century, the writer Al-Jahiz admiringly observed that the Turk can shoot at beasts, birds, hoops, men, sitting quarry, dummies, and birds on the wing, and do so at full gallop, to fore or rear, to left or to right, upwards or downwards, loosing ten arrows before the Arab can knock one. The army of a Turkic warlord consisted of two distinct groups of horse archers. The first group was the Askar, a standing force of paid professional soldiers, including both Mamluks and Free Turks. Warlords used the resources of their domains to equip their Askars with armor and effective hand-to-hand weapons. The Askar troops retained all of the traditional horse archer skills and tactics from their nomadic background, but combined them with greater discipline and better capabilities in close combat. The Askar of a typical Turkic warlord state numbered 1,000 to 2,000 men. A handful of states could field much larger forces. By the 1170s, the Askar of Mosul was 6,000 strong. The second and much more numerous group of horse archers in a Turkic warlord army consisted of mercenary nomad warriors. Steppe nomads were continually filtering down from the Eurasian steppes into the borderlands and war zones of the Middle East, arriving both as small war bands and entire tribes. When a warlord went to war, he reinforced his Askar with as many nomad warriors as he could afford to hire. In contrast to the Askar troops, most of these warriors were unarmored or at best lightly armored, and armed only with their bows and a supplementary melee weapon, such as a spear, club, mace, or battle axe. They were also undisciplined, unruly, and served primarily for plunder. Nevertheless, the nomad mercenaries were highly effective and fearsome fighters. Nomad warriors fresh off the steppes were available in large numbers. 
A hint of this is found in an anecdote from the Arab warrior, diplomat, and poet Usama ibn Mudkid, a scion of the Banu Munkid dynasty that ruled the fortress city of Shizar in northern Syria. Usama saw service with some of the most prominent Turkic warlords, as well as with the Fatimid Caliphate of Egypt. His memoir, The Book of Contemplation, provides a fascinating Muslim perspective on the Crusades and the Crusader states. In 1150, Usama was dispatched by the Fatimids to the great warlord Nur al-Din, then ruler of Aleppo and much of northern Syria, on a mission to hire Turkic mercenaries. After much negotiation, Nur al-Din gave Usama permission to take into Egyptian service any nomads who had been rejected by Nur al-Din's own army. In a matter of days, Usama was able to hire 860 Turkic horse archers, that so many of these fighting men were still available at a particular moment in one corner of Syria, even after the local warlords had recruited as many of them as they needed, suggests that the nomadic manpower pool was very deep indeed. When campaigning an enemy country, a Turkic army unleashed its horsemen to raid over a wide area. Nomads were only interested in cultivated lands as a source of plunder. Turkic raiders therefore laid waste to entire rural communities, taking away anything they could carry on their horses and burning the rest. Able-bodied civilians were captured to be sold as slaves or held for ransom. Anyone considered of no value was massacred. For warlords, these raids could fulfill important strategic purposes. Raids intimidated and struck fear in the enemy. Moreover, as agrarian people, the Franks could not stand to see their farms and fields devastated. Raids could therefore provoke them into fighting a battle at a disadvantage. Repeated over several campaigns, large-scale raiding wrecked the Franks' economy, eroding their powers of resistance. In battle, Turkic horse archers employed a devastatingly effective combination of dispersion, mobility, and firepower. A Turkic army deployed and moved in loose swarms, which would use their superior speed and agility to outflank and surround an enemy force, then attack it from all sides. The horse archers would surge forward in squadrons, galloping at their enemies and showering them with arrows. If the foe charged them, the Turks would retreat, still shooting at their pursuers as they did so. A favorite Turkic trick was the feigned retreat, in which they pretended to flee only to suddenly turn and launch a surprise attack. Only after their hit-and-run tactics had depleted the enemy's numbers, diminished their morale, disrupted their formations, and degraded their cohesion would the Turks charge in to finish them off in close combat. For Frankish soldiers, the consequences of a Turkic victory were often harrowing. High-ranking prisoners were usually spared for ransom. Yet even they were subject to brutal mistreatment, bound in chains, humiliated, beaten, deprived of food and water. Low-ranking captives were lucky if they were spared to be sold into slavery. Turks often slaughtered the Franks who fell into their hands. For nomads, severed heads tied to their saddles demonstrated their prowess. But a more practical and long-lasting trophy was a bundle of scalps. After annihilating the army of Antioch at the Battle of Ager Sanguinis in 1119, the Turks took 500 prisoners. Half were scalped. Walter the Chancellor, a high-ranking survivor, vividly and gruesomely describes how these unfortunates suffered agonizing death with the skin flayed from their living and half-severed heads. 
As soon as the Crusaders encountered the Turks, they were impressed by their strange yet highly potent way of war. One Frank wrote that the Turks were not weighed down with armor like our people, and because they were more lightly armed, they were often able to inflict much greater damage and injury on our people. The Turks are almost unarmed, only carrying a bow and a club bristling with sharp teeth and a sword. They also have a reedy spear with an iron tip and a light dagger. If they are hotly pursued a long way, they flee on very fast horses. There are none nimbler in the world with the swiftest gallop like the flight of swallows. Albert of Aachen, a chronicler of the First Crusade, gives a specific example of how deadly the Turks could be even in retreat. Following the bloody battle of Dorylium, the crusaders were pursuing the defeated Turks. A French knight, Gerard of Kerzy, spotted a Turk on a nearby hill, couched his lance, and charged. The Turk suddenly turned and shot an arrow that punched through the crusader's shield and chainmail armor and pierced his liver. As the knight lay dying, the Turk made off with his horse. A Turkic warlord army could be lethal on campaign and in pitched battle. It was a force long on speed, agility, and firepower. Yet it was far from invincible. As we'll see, the Frankish armies of the Crusader states developed effective countermeasures against horse archers. In addition, warlord armies suffered significant operational and strategic limitations because of their nomad mercenaries all-consuming lust for plunder. On campaign, Turkic warlords had to allow their mercenaries to raid and loot. An alert and astute Frankish commander could take advantage of the resulting scattering of the foe's troops to force a Turkic army to fight at a disadvantage. Saladin himself suffered a crushing defeat at the Battle of Montgisar in 1077 when he allowed the bulk of his army to disperse too widely. Nomads were willing to remain in the field for only a brief period before they returned to their families and herds. If a campaign went on too long and offered too little plunder as compensation, nomads would simply go home. Nomads were also loath to risk themselves or their most precious goods, their horses, against especially determined resistance. A Turkic army had to win quickly and with as few losses as possible. The nomads' hunger for plunder could create headaches for their warlord employers even when matters were going well. If nomads gathered too much plunder during their raiding, they might decide they had reaped all of a campaign's rewards and quit early. A Turkic army could disband prematurely before it could bring the enemy's field force to battle. Nomads could even short-circuit a victory. In 1104, a Seljuk Turk army crushed the combined hosts of the Principality of Antioch and the County of Edessa at the Battle of Haran. But the Frankish remnants were able to disengage because different Turkic contingents fell out over the division of the spoils, particularly the prisoners who had been taken for enslavement or ransom. By the time the Turkic commanders had restored order, the Franks had managed to get away. Steve Tibble, one of the finest historians of crusader warfare, pithily sums up armies dependent on large contingents of Turkic nomads as always tactically dangerous but rarely strategically fatal. Finally, the Turkic warlord statelets had serious strategic shortcomings in their own right when fighting the Franks. Individual Turkic regimes, including even relatively powerful ones, such as Aleppo, Damascus, and Mosul, could not decisively defeat their Frankish opponents. 
a warlord simply did not have the resources to build up a sufficiently large Askar and hire enough nomad mercenaries to create a force that could overwhelm and occupy a crusader state. Moreover, the bitter internecine rivalries among the warlords prevented them from acting in concert. What was needed was for a single warlord to reimpose unity on all of Muslim Syria and take command of the military resources of all of the warlord states. For the Crusader states, warfare was both unrelenting and unsparing in its brutality. Year after year, the Frankish armies had to take the field either to attack a hostile Muslim neighbor or repel a Muslim invasion. Even when the main armies were not in the field, the Frankish borderlands were the scene of endless small-scale skirmishing and raiding. Moreover, the consequences of defeat at Turkic hands were devastating. Whole communities destroyed, farmlands laid waste, entire civilian populations carried away or butchered. In such circumstances, Utremer could not help but become, in the apt words of the founding father of the modern study of crusading warfare, R.C. Smale, a feudal society organized for war. The Frankish armies of Utremer developed into the most formidable European fighting forces of their day. Frankish troops were battle-hardened and highly motivated, both by religious zeal and the desire to defend their homes against a merciless foe. Most Frankish commanders were competent and diligent. A few even approached greatness. But the most important reason that accounted for the effectiveness and potency of the hosts of the Crusader states was their successful adaptation of Western warfare to the context and conditions of the Middle East. The cutting edge of the Frankish armies was the heavily armored, heavily armed, close combat cavalrymen, the knight. The knights were the Frankish nobility in arms. They were as social as well as a military elite. Their dominance over the Crusader states was based on their fighting prowess, which was produced by a lifetime of training in horsemanship and the exercise of arms. Frankish knights were the best equipped troops in the 12th century Middle East. The Rule of the Templars, the 12th century guide to life in the great military order, stated that each knight brother should have a hauberk, iron hose, a helmet or chapeau de fer, a sword, a shield, a lance, a Turkish mace, a surcoat, arming jacket, mail shoes, and three knives. A knight equipped to this standard was a veritable ambulatory arsenal. In terms of defensive gear, knights wore the best armor of the day the chainmail hauberk. Resembling a long-sleeved shirt reaching down to just above the knee, a hauberk was made from row after row of interlinked metal rings. The rings stopped penetration by a weapon by dissipating the impact of a blow across a wide area. When combined with the arming jacket, a padded leather jerkin worn underneath, the male hauberk provided excellent protection. The armor weighed about 25 pounds, but because the weight was distributed across the wearer's shoulders, it was not an excessive burden for a fit soldier. Requiring considerable amounts of metal, as well as many hours of highly skilled labor to produce, the male hauberk was extremely expensive. In Burgundy, at the time of the First Crusade, a good quality horse cost between 20 and 50 sous, or silver coins, while a hauberk cost 100 sous. Yet the hauberk's outstanding protective qualities made it an essential investment for all knights. 
Rounding out a knight's defensive equipment was a helmet and a shield. At the beginning of the 12th century, the helmet was a simple conical design that would be familiar to anyone who has gazed upon the Norman knights and Saxon house carls on the Bayeux tapestry. The helmet was typically worn over a coif, a chainmail hood that covered and protected the neck. At first, facial protection was provided just by a nasal bar. But given the threat posed by Turkic archery, the nasal bar gradually expanded to cover more of the face until full visors became common. The knight's shield was large, kite-shaped, and covered much of the knight's left side. It was made from wood, covered by leather, and reinforced by a metal boss in the middle. For offensive arms, the knight had first and foremost his lance. The primary weapon in mounted combat, especially the charge, the lance was about four meters long and made from a hard wood such as ash. For close quarters combat, the knight relied on a sidearm, most commonly a sword. The knight's sword was usually 76 to 83 centimeters long, double-edged, straight-bladed, and particularly suited for slashing cuts. By far the most important piece of a knight's kit was his horse. The 12th century war horse, the Destrier, was smaller than we imagine, usually no more than 15 hands high, 152 centimeters or 5 feet at the shoulder. But these horses were the products of rigorous breeding and constant training. An important fact about Frankish Destriers that we need to keep in mind was that they were unarmored. Horse armor was both prohibitively expensive and excessively heavy. Unprotected war horses profoundly affected the tactics of Frankish armies. Given his armament and his horse, as well as the leisure time required for him to train, a knight was an extremely expensive combat unit. The labor of numerous cultivators was needed to field even a single knight. The number of knights that could be raised by the Crusader states was necessarily limited. In 1265, a Frankish jurist named John of Ibelin produced a list of the knight service owed by the noblemen holding fiefs in the Kingdom of Jerusalem in the 1180s. The three greatest lords of Jerusalem each owed the service of 100 knights. By contrast, 58 fief holders served personally. The total was 675 knights. Although no similar documents exist for the other crusader states, we can assume that Antioch could field an equal number of knights as Jerusalem and Edessa and Tripoli half each. The combined Frankish strength was about 2,000 knights. This number could be augmented. One source of extra knights was mercenaries, knights who served in exchange for pay rather than a fief. The great Frankish lords hired knights from all over Outremer and even from Europe to supplement their feudal contingents. But the leading employer of mercenaries was the king of Jerusalem. The king's control of the coastal cities and their trade gave him access to ready cash to hire troops. As the 12th century wore on, mercenaries became an ever more important part of the Frankish army. But the most significant source of supplementary knights was the military orders. The hospital and the temple could each field about 300 knights by the second half of the 12th century. Knights had a military importance out of all proportion to their small numbers because they alone could execute the one battle-winning tactic available to the Franks, the heavy cavalry charge. 
Properly timed and accurately aimed, a Frankish charge was an awesome weapon that allowed just a small number of knights to smash through and sweep away far larger numbers of enemy troops in a matter of minutes. Anna Komnena, a Byzantine princess and historian who left one of the most valuable accounts of the First Crusade, contended the charging Frankish knights were so irresistible they could bore through the very walls of Babylon. The Frankish armies reinforced their knights with substantial numbers of less heavily armored and less well-mounted cavalrymen. Squires, youthful trainee knights, had no fighting role in Western Europe. In Utremer, they rode and fought behind their masters in the charge. A much more important contingent of horsemen was the mounted sergeants. In the Middle Ages, a sergeant was a non-noble trained soldier. In the same document in which he details the knight service owed by the nobles of Jerusalem, John of Ibelin notes that the chief religious institutions and the cities of the kingdom were required to provide sergeants for the army whenever there was what the jurist terms great need on the land. The Patriarch of Jerusalem and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre each owed the service of 500 sergeants, as did Acre and Tyre. The total number of sergeants was 5,025. While most of these sergeants would have fought as infantry, a notable share would have been cavalry. In addition, brother sergeants always constituted an important part of the Templar and Hospitaller armies. In battle, mounted sergeants, like squires, formed up behind the knights and added critical mass to the charge. But the most numerous force of light cavalry, as well as the most exotic and colorful element of the Frankish armies, were the Turkopoles. Christian horse archers. So impressed were the crusaders by the Turks and their way of war that they sought to acquire horse archers of their own. The term Turkopol itself was adopted from the Byzantine army's units of ethnic Turkic cavalry. In the Frankish armies, Turkopol designated a horse archer regardless of ethnic origin. A few Turkopoles were genuine Turks. As in Muslim warlord armies, they would have been nomad mercenaries. Many of them would have converted to Christianity. However, the Crusader states had great difficulty tapping into Turkic manpower. The county of Tripoli and the kingdom of Jerusalem had no access at all to the nomads moving into the Middle East from the steppes. The majority of Turkopoles were native Christians or even Franks who had somehow acquired the skills of mounted bowmen. In terms of skill, the Turkopoles could never match the Turks. Neither the Franks nor the native Christian peoples of Syria had a tradition of horse archery. But the performance of the Turkopoles improved over the course of the 12th century as their training became better and they gained more combat experience. But the performance of the Turkopoles improved over the course of the 12th century as their training became better and they gained more combat experience. The Turkopoles also increased in numbers. By the second half of the 12th century, they made up at least half, and often the majority of the Frankish cavalry. The prominence and importance of the Turkopoles were reflected in the command structures of the temple and the hospital. In the military orders, the officer in charge of the horse archers, the Turkopolier, enjoyed very high rank and status. The Turkopoles became such a prominent part of the armies of Utremer because they provided the mobility, flexibility, and firepower needed to at least compete with the Turks. Turkopoles were indispensable in scouting, long-range reconnaissance, patrolling, and spying. 
but their most important contribution was to blunt the effectiveness of Turkic raiding and harassment. Unlike the heavily armored and ponderous knights, Turkopoles could catch and skirmish with the swarms of nomad horse archers thrown out by a Turkic warlord army. Christian horse archers could even play an offensive role, raiding Muslim territory, attacking supply lines, and falling upon isolated enemy troops. In pitched battles, the Franks initially experimented with deploying Turkopoles in their own formation that went head-to-head against the Turkic horse archers. This experiment was a disaster. At both the victory of Teldaneth in 1115 and the catastrophic defeat of Agir Sanguinis in 1119, the Turkopoles, outnumbered and outmatched by the Turks, broke and routed. Subsequently, the Franks used their horse archers like squires and sergeants. The Turkopoles massed behind the front rank of knights and added their weight and numbers to the charge. For all the importance and prestige of the cavalry, infantry always made up the bulk of the Crusader state's field armies. In Europe, the 12th century was something of a low point for infantry. A motley collection of armed noble servants and conscripted serfs, ill-trained and ill-equipped, lacking discipline and cohesion, European infantry had little value on the battlefield and were useful only in sieges. In Outremer, the permanent state of war, the very high level of social mobilization for warfare, and the existential threat posed by the Turks resulted in infantry that were far more effective. Moreover, as we'll shortly see, infantry were indispensable for Frankish field armies because they could protect the cavalry as well as counter the firepower of the Turkic horse archers. Most Frankish footmen were heavily armed and armored spearmen. They were protected by helmets, body armor, usually leather, stiffened, padded linen, but also frequently chainmail, and large shields. In addition to their long spears, they would have carried a sword, mace, or axe. The other Frankish foot were crossbowmen. For Frankish armies, the crossbow was a weapon as important in battle as the knightly lance. It was easy to operate. A competent crossbowman could be produced after a few days of training, while becoming a good archer required a lifetime of practice. The crossbow was therefore the ideal weapon for militiamen or semi-professional troops, such as foot archers. Compared to the horsebow, the crossbow had much better range. Its short, stout missiles, called bolts, also had impressive penetrating power. However, the crossbow was far inferior in rate of fire. A Turkic archer could shoot at least five or six arrows in a minute, compared to one or two bolts for a crossbowman. Anna Komnena was greatly impressed by the power of the crossbow and crusader hands. This crossbow is a bow of the barbarians, quite unknown to the Greeks, she wrote, and it is not stretched by the right hand pulling the string, while the left pulls the bow in a contrary direction, but he who stretches this warlike and very far-shooting weapon must lie, one might say, almost on his back, and apply both feet strongly against the semicircle of the bow, and with his two hands pull the string with all his might in the contrary direction. In the middle of the string is a socket, a cylindrical kind of cup fitted to the string itself, and about as long as an arrow of considerable size, which reaches from the string to the very middle of the bow, and through this, Arrows of many sorts are shot out. The arrows used with this bow are very short in length, but very thick, fitted in front with a very heavy iron tip, 
and in discharging them, the string shoots them out with enormous violence and force, and whatever these darts chance to hit, they do not fall back, but they pierce through a shield, then cut through a heavy iron corslet, and wing their way through and out the other side. So violent is the discharge of arrows of this kind. Such an arrow has been known to pierce a bronze statue, and if it hits the wall of a very large town, the point of the arrow either protrudes on the inner side or buries itself in the middle of the wall and is lost. Such, then, is this monster of a crossbow, and truly a devilish invention, and the wretched man who is struck by it dies without feeling anything, not even the blow, however strong it be. In the burning heat of midday, the traveler sank beneath the shade of an olive tree. Just two days before, he had been in holy Jerusalem, praying at the places where Christ had died and had risen again from the dead. Now he was on the last stage of his pilgrimage. He was going to the Jordan, to where the Son of God had been baptized. But the way across the hills of Judea was long and dusty, the son of Utramer far brighter and fiercer than back home. So the traveler welcomed a chance to rest. Here, part way up this little hill, and in the cover of the olive grove, he had a safe perch with a good view of the road. He had not been dozing long when he heard a confusion of noise. Faint at first, it grew louder and louder, and the sounds became more distinct. Thudding hooves, keening neighs, shouted voices, jangling metal. He opened his eye. A thick cloud of red and ochre dust was smudging the clear blue sky. Out of this gloom appeared a long column of riders, bearing uplifted lances and streaming banners. Knights, he realized, but like no others he had seen before. Their helmets were wrapped in white turbans to keep off the sun. Their male hauberks were covered by long, colorful garments, loose-fitting and sleeveless, bearing the wearer's insignia. Later, he would learn these garments, surcoats they were called, had been copied from the Saracens, and they did not just display a knight's arms, but kept the armor beneath cool. Soon knights back home would also be taking up the fashion. Suddenly, three horsemen were galloping toward the knights. The horses, little more than ponies, were coated with lather. The riders were outlandish. Their black hair was in long twisted plates. They wore strange garments of dark leather and bright silk. At their belts, were rows of knives and a long curved sword. Strapped to their saddles were cases holding short bows and many arrows. Turks, the traveler realized with a sudden jolt of fear. But the knights showed no sign of alarm, simply stopped and waited for the riders to reach them. Then the traveler noticed the gold crosses sewn on the Turks' clothes. The Turks reined their mounts to a halt and addressed the knights. Their incomprehensible words sounded harsh, guttural, and ugly to the traveler's ears. But the commander of the knights calmly answered in the same tongue. Then the column of horsemen began moving again. Following the knights trudged an even longer line of men on foot. Many had spears in their hands and round or kite-shaped shields on their backs. Others shouldered great crossbows. Some of the men, the traveler noticed, had features much like his own pale-complected, light-eyed, straw-haired. But most had the black hair, dark eyes, and dun coloring of the people of Utramer. In the banter of the marching footmen, the traveler caught many words in his own Norman French, but mingled with long snatches and languages he had only heard since he had arrived in the Holy Land, Arabic, Armenian, Syriac. 
Bringing up the rear was a baggage train. Men in long robes and turbans cursed, prodded, and struck at heavily laden, lowing camels. The strong, sour smell of the strange humped beasts reached the traveler's nose and nearly made him gag. Then he remembered that in Jerusalem, word had gone out among the pilgrims that the Saracens were raiding the eastern borders of the kingdom. Once, long ago, he had swung a sword for the Duke of Normandy. He wondered if he still remembered how. There was only one way to find out. He got up, ran down the hill, and chased after the little army. A European visitor to Outremer who encountered a Frankish army would have faced many unfamiliar sights, sounds, and smells. The same observer, seeing this army in battle against the Turks, would have noticed that the Franks also fought very differently from Western Europeans. In contrast to the fast and agile Turks, a Frankish army was slow and ponderous. In order to survive, much less win a battle, the Franks of Outremer had to develop a distinctive way of war that maximized their strengths while minimizing their weaknesses. The Franks' trump card against the Turks was the charge. The impact of even a handful of knights on horse archers was devastating. If the knights were able to sustain their momentum, they could smash through and sweep away far larger numbers of their lighter, less well-armored foes. The problem was for the charge to connect. The much more mobile Turks could evade and outflank the knights, then swarm over them from all sides. The Franks, therefore, had to develop a tightly disciplined and well-ordered charge. In 12th century Europe, a disciplined knightly charge was an oxymoron. Knights were famously individualistic, undisciplined fighters who sought to display their bravery and so win renown on the battlefield. A European charge was little more than a rush of glory-hungry individuals. Against the Turks, this kind of charge was a recipe for certain disaster. The key to a better disciplined charge was unit cohesion. In Europe, armies were mustered for each campaign and then disbanded as soon as it was over. Moreover, a knight had to serve in arms only for a limited duration, typically a total of 40 days every year. European knights therefore had no real opportunities to train together and learn to work in cohesive units. The situation could not have been more different at Outremer. There, knights were regularly called up to campaign and were continuously engaged in the everyday small war of raiding and skirmishing. Knightly service in the Crusader states was extremely demanding. Knights were required to serve for a year in the event of a Muslim invasion and for four months if the host campaigned outside the homeland's borders or if it went to the aid of another Crusader state. The Knights of Outremer had to serve in arms until they were 60, although they could deputize a replacement once they reached 40. Frankish knights therefore had ample opportunity to learn to maneuver and fight in units. Squadrons were formed on a territorial basis, with knights from neighboring fiefs grouped together. The larger contingents of the royal domain and the great baronies such as Galilee and Outre-Jourdan formed their own divisions. The greater practical experience of knights in Outremer was demonstrated by the absence of the tournament in the Crusader states. In Europe, the tournament developed as a form of artificial war in order to give knights the chance to practice and display their martial skills in the absence of the real thing. Frankish knights had no need of the tournament because they had a surfeit of war and so were always learning on the job. 
A model for knightly discipline and unit cohesion was provided by the military orders of the temple and hospital. The Templars and Hospitallers were bound by vows to always obey the orders of their superiors. Moreover, the great wealth of the orders meant that brother knights could spend much of their time in training. Templars and Hospitallers were virtually professional soldiers. In battle, the order's discipline was legendary. All brother knights had to wait for the order of their commander to charge. Until then, they could not leave the ranks. Frankish knights therefore charged as a single unit in close formation. They aimed at the most solid part of a Muslim army, the Askar, of more heavily armed and armored troops, and, if possible, the commanding warlord himself. The initial onslaught would be the most effective, yet Frankish knights often had the discipline, cohesion, and motivation to charge a second or even third time. Even with lances broken and horses blown, they remained very dangerous. This ability to launch multiple charges is vividly illustrated by an anecdote from Walter the Chancellor involving the veteran Antiochene knight Robert of Vupont at the 1119 siege of Al-Atharib. Walter the Chancellor writes that Robert charged many of them as they rode in troops and struck them, and at once, after he had broken his lance on one of them, he drew his sword and struck many others of them again, and only when he himself had been struck in return by many, and his horse pierced by many different weapons, did he fall. But although he was brought down to the ground by the constant blows of lances and arrows, yet he rose up and mustered his forces. At once, they brought him a second horse, which he mounted. Soon after, they charged the enemy together a second time. An effective charge could end a battle in the blink of an eye. However, launching it required an exquisite sense of timing and precise tactical control. But there was an even more important, indeed critical, requirement for the Franks, the preservation of their horses from Turkic arrows. The knights themselves were so heavily armored that they were largely invulnerable to the arrow barrages shot by the Turks during their hit-and-run attacks. Not so their destriers, which were large targets and entirely unprotected by armor. The Turks learned to aim at the horses, knowing that killing or wounding these animals would deprive the elite Frankish troops of their best tactic. At the end of the Battle of Hattin, although Saladin's victorious Muslims captured thousands of Christian prisoners, they took no horses among the spoils of victory. The Turks had shot every horse, even though destriers represented extremely valuable booty for steppe nomads. The solution involved the Frankish infantry. The heavy spearmen formed a shield wall, behind which the cavalry took cover from Turkic arrow storms until the moment when the knights were ready to unleash their charge. The infantry would then open their ranks and allow the cavalry to filter through them. The knights and their supporting horsemen, squires, sergeants, and turcopoles, would quickly form up and launch themselves at the enemy. The shield wall was an old and familiar tactic to European infantry. At the Battle of Hastings in 1066, the Saxon shield wall had resisted the charges of the formidable Norman knights. However, the Franks of Utremer added a key refinement by integrating large numbers of crossbowmen into the formation. The crossbow had greater range, accuracy, and killing power than the horse bow. Turkic horse archers attacking a Frankish shield wall had to ride through volleys of deadly bolts. 
the Turks' most effective counter to crossbowmen was to rush in and ride them down, yet they were prevented from doing so by the wall of shields and spears. To maximize the effectiveness of this improved shield wall, the Frankish infantry took to fighting in teams, consisting of two spearmen and two crossbowmen. The spearmen would stand in front with their spears leveled and their shields locked. The crossbowmen would take turns shooting through the gap between the shields. Alternatively, the better marksman would shoot while his partner reloaded. This relay system ensured the Turkic attackers faced a constant stream of bolts. A Frankish army therefore fought best as a combined arms force. But the Frankish cavalry and infantry were more than merely complementary. They were in fact interdependent. On the one hand, the cavalry relied on the infantry to protect their vulnerable horses from Turkic arrows and win them time to unleash their charge. On the other hand, without the cavalry, infantry could not drive away Turkic horse archers. Eventually, the Turks would overwhelm the Frankish foot. Combined arms and interdependency were best exhibited by the tactic most closely associated with the armies of the Crusader states, the fighting march. So swift and agile were Turkic forces that they were frequently able to set upon and surround a Frankish army while it was still on the move, and before it had the chance to deploy into battle formation. The Frankish response was to form up their army in three boxes, vanguard, center, and rearguard. The outer layer of each box was made up of the infantry shield wall of spearmen and crossbowmen. Sheltering behind this outer layer in the middle of the boxes were the cavalry. In addition, the center box also contained the army's headquarters, with the main standards and any holy relics that were present, the baggage train and the wounded. In the fighting march, the whole army was able to continue to move and even maneuver while under Turkic hit-and-run attacks. The three boxes could deal with attacks coming from all sides. More importantly, they could lend each other support. The Turks almost always concentrated on the rearguard division, which was the most exposed of the three. If the military orders were present, they usually took charge of the rearguard division as the most disciplined and dependable Frankish troops. From his position in the center box, the Frankish commander was able to check on the progress of the other boxes and adjust the army's pace as necessary. He could also rush reinforcements to any division beleaguered by the Turks. Finally, if the opportunity presented itself, the commander could order the cavalry to move through the infantry and launch a charge. Some of the best evidence for the effectiveness of the fighting march comes to us from Muslim sources. Baha al-Din, a Kurdish scholar and companion of Saladin who wrote an important biography of the warlord, could not help write admiringly of the good order and dangerous missile fire of a Frankish column on the move. Saladin sent the skirmishers forward, and the arrows on both sides were like rain. The enemy army was already in formation, with the infantry surrounding it like a wall, wearing solid iron corslets and full-length well-made chain mail, so that arrows were falling on them with no effect. They were shooting with crossbows and wounding the Muslims' horses, their cavalry, and infantry. I saw various individuals among the Franks with ten arrows fixed in their backs, pressing on in this fashion, quite unconcerned. The Arab warrior and writer, Usama ibn Munkid, summed up a lifetime of fighting against the armies of the Crusader states by noting that of all men, the Franks are the most cautious in warfare. 
the harsh and pitiless school of crusading warfare taught the Franks of Outremer to temper boldness and impetuosity with caution and restraint. Discipline was the foundation of their tactical innovations, the well-ordered charge, the combined arms shield wall, and the fighting march. In the 88 years between the conquest of Jerusalem and the Battle of Hattin, the hosts of the Crusader states developed a formidable reputation amongst their enemies. Yet for all their army's potency on the battlefield, the Crusader states faced a fundamental problem, a lack of manpower. The Crusader states recruited their armies from Frankish settlers and native Middle Eastern Christians. However, there were never enough recruits. The Frankish settlers, although more numerous than previously believed, were still too few to even come close to meeting their army's needs. The native Christian populations, with the exceptions of the Armenians and the Maronites, had been demilitarized during almost five centuries of Islamic rule. They therefore could not produce enough fighting men. Knights were particularly difficult for the Franks to come by. Knights required fiefs, and the Crusader states had already parceled out all of their available land. The manpower problem imposed enormous operational and strategic constraints on the Crusader states. Their field armies were always outnumbered by the forces of Turkic warlords, who could dip into the inexhaustible well of steppe nomad manpower. The Frankish armies were also dangerously fragile. If one were lost, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to replace. The Franks strove energetically and resourcefully to address their manpower problem. One way to ameliorate the problem's effects was for the armies of the Crusader states to campaign and fight together. Relations among Edessa, Antioch, Tripoli, and Jerusalem were often marked by tensions and rivalries. Jealousies and personal enmities chronically divided the Frankish princes. More than once, these divisions brought the Crusader states to the brink of civil war. But the imperatives of survival against the Muslim threat always compelled the princes to set aside their differences and lead their armies to each other's aid. The armies of Utremer were also occasionally reinforced by an influx of troops from outside powers. On these occasions, the Frankish rulers tried to use their temporarily enhanced military strength to achieve ambitious goals. In the early days of the Crusader states, the fleets of the Italian city-states of Pisa, Genoa, and Venice made an enormous contribution. Italian sailors proved to be excellent infantry, especially in siege warfare. With their indispensable assistance, the kings of Jerusalem and the counts of Tripoli captured the Palestinian and Syrian coasts. Another source of temporary manpower were European pilgrims. Each year, thousands of Europeans came to Outremer on the Passagium Vernale, the spring sailing of the Italian merchant fleets. In emergencies, the king of Jerusalem could press these pilgrims into service. In 1102, after a disastrous defeat at the hands of Fatimid Egyptian forces, King Baldwin I commanded all pilgrims to muster with his host. They helped him beat the Egyptians at the Battle of Jaffa. Sometimes, the pilgrims included a major European noble and his army. Between 1128 and 1168, Thierry, Count of Flanders, one of the most powerful lords of Western Europe, led no less than four expeditions to the aid of Outremer. Combining the Frankish armies and exploiting temporary influxes of troops offered short-term fixes to the manpower problem. 
but the only permanent solution for the Crusader states was to expand and take over more land. In particular, the Franks needed to seize control of one, and preferably all three of the Middle East's major power centers, Aleppo, Damascus, and Cairo. The Crusader states' efforts to do just that would propel events down to the Battle of Hattin. From the earliest days of the Crusader states, the Frankish princes were determined to break out of the narrow confines of the Palestinian and Syrian coasts. Today, we tend to be skeptical that medieval states could pursue sophisticated and consistent policies. Politics was too personal and governing institutions too primitive to allow for the formulation, much less the execution, of long-term plans. But Steve Tibble makes a compelling case that the rulers of the Crusader states developed and implemented over several decades a strategy of expansion into the Muslim hinterlands of the Middle East. They had two goals. First, the Frankish princes wanted to gain the strategic depth needed to effectively defend Jerusalem and the coastal cities. Second, they sought to conquer the demographic and economic resources to solve the manpower problem. First off the mark were the princes of Antioch. Their target was Aleppo, located 100 kilometers to the east of Antioch, just beyond the low-lying hills of the Jabal Talat. Aleppo was the metropolis of northern Syria. Beginning in 1103, the Antiochene princes drove over the hills, encroaching closer and closer to Aleppo. This effort received firm support from Edessa. The small but superb Edessan field army campaigned so frequently with its Antiochene counterpart that they essentially became a single force. The Turkic warlords of Syria were too consumed by their own rivalries to mount anything remotely resembling a coordinated response to the aggression of the Crusader states. In the real-life Game of Thrones that was the 12th century Middle East, the Franks were just one more player among many. Syria's nominal overlords, the Seljuk sultans of Baghdad, hesitated to intervene. The sultan's attentions and energies were focused on the struggle for control over the Seljuk heartlands in Iraq, Iran, and Khorasan. Sources produced in Baghdad barely mention the fall of Jerusalem, even though it was one of Islam's holy cities. The Muslims' lackluster reaction to the Crusader states seems especially surprising given that Islam's doctrine of holy war was far older and more sophisticated than crusading. Yet the fires of jihad, which had driven Muslim armies to conquer much of the world in the 7th century, appear to have been largely quenched by the 12th. When a religious scholar of Damascus named al-Sulami preached jihad against the Franks in 1105, his audience was tiny. Similar appeals for holy war also fell on largely deaf ears. Only much later would al-Sulami's message resound throughout the Islamic world. For the Seljuk sultans, the most threatening enemies of the faith were not infidel Franks, but heretic Muslims. In the 1090s, a succession struggle in the Shia Fatimid Caliphate of Egypt had produced the Nizaris, a branch of the Ismailis. Taking advantage of the Seljuk civil wars that broke out after the death of Sultan Malik Shah in 1095, the Nizaris established themselves in the impregnable fortress of Alamut in the Elburz Mountains of northern Iran. Alamut became the capital of a Nizari state in the middle of the Seljuk realms. 
Soon after, other Nizaris carved out another independent lordship centered on the great castle of Masyaf in the Jebel Ansariya, the rugged mountain range in Syria located between the Principality of Antioch and the Muslim-held towns of Hama and Shizar. One of the most effective and feared tactics of the Nizaris was the murder of enemy leaders. Their enemies denigrated the Nizaris as al-Hashishia, or hashish smokers. Al-Hashishia became assassins, the term the Franks and we will use for the Nizaris. Eventually, appeals from Syria demanded that the Seljuk sultans make war against the Franks. The Islamic scholar and historian Al-Jozi records that Abu Sa'd al-Harawi, the Qadi, or chief religious judge of Damascus, stood up in the caliph's council and made a speech which caused the assembled company to weep. Someone was appointed from the council to go to the sultan's camp and inform them of this disaster. Then, apathy reigned. Another delegation, consisting of Sufi merchants and holy men from Aleppo, became so frustrated by the inaction of the sultan that they staged a protest by disrupting Friday prayers at both the caliph's and sultan's mosques in Baghdad. The cause of Aleppo was taken up by members of the sultan's court. The great poet Mu'izi called for the Seljuks to make polo balls of the Franks' heads in the desert and polo sticks from their hands and feet. These appeals forced Sultan Muhammad Tapar to act. The Sultan was committed to fighting the Nizari assassins in Iran. From his perspective, Syria was a troubled borderland of decidedly secondary importance. But allowing the infidel Franks to attack Muslims and conquer Muslim lands was too damaging to Muhammad's prestige. In 1111, the Sultan openly declared his willingness to wage jihad. He deputized Maudud, Emir of Mosul, to aid Aleppo and attack the Franks. Maudud mustered a powerful army consisting of a contingent of the Sultan's troops, his own Askar, and the forces of many Emirs of Iraq. For Maudud, the next three years would be a crash course in the intricate, treacherous politics of Muslim Syria. In 1111, he first invaded the county of Edessa. The Edessan Franks were too weak to meet him in battle. Maudud thoroughly ravaged the county, then turned south for Aleppo. As the army of the Emir of Mosul approached, Ridwan, ruler of Aleppo, grew increasingly worried. Although a Seljuk prince and a cousin of the Sultan, Ridwan had allied himself with the assassins of Syria. Maudud's army, he calculated, could aid him against Antioch. It might also allow Sultan Muhammad to seize power in Aleppo and end his independence. Ridwan ordered the gates of Aleppo shut to Maudud's army. The citizens of Aleppo, who had gone to Baghdad to appeal for the Sultan's help, were treated as traitors. In retaliation, Maudud unleashed his army on Ridwan's territories. The troops from Mosul and Iraq ended up looting the lands they had come to rescue. A Muslim chronicler lamented that they created more devastation than the Franks had done. After his frustration at Aleppo, Maudud marched west to confront the Franks. The field armies of Antioch and Edessa were then besieging the strategically crucial town of Shizar. Word of Maudud's coming had caused alarm in the Crusader states, so the hosts of Jerusalem and Tripoli rushed up to reinforce the northern Franks. The Frankish and Muslim armies confronted each other from opposite banks of the Orontes River. Despite all of Maudud's efforts to provoke a battle, the Franks refused to fight. 
In the end, both sides disengaged and returned home. All that Maudud had to show for his efforts was the relief of Shizar. In 1112, Maudud campaigned against Edessa, once again ravaging the county from end to end. The next year, the emir of Mosul decided on a change of strategy. Instead of attacking the northern crusader states, he instead joined forces with Tugtigin, the warlord of Damascus. Together, Maudud and Tugtigin invaded the kingdom of Jerusalem. At Asenabra in Galilee, the Muslim forces inflicted a crushing defeat on the field army of Jerusalem. The kingdom was only saved by the intervention of the armies of Antioch and Tripoli. After the Battle of Asenabra, Maudud appeared to be on the verge of accomplishing great things against the Franks. Instead, he would fall victim to the treacherous politics of the Syrian warlords. On October 2nd, 1113, Maudud and Tugtigin were leaving a mosque in Damascus. A lone attacker set upon them and plunged a dagger into the emir of Mosul. Blame immediately fell on the assassin, but the more likely culprit was Tugtigin, who escaped from the attack miraculously and suspiciously unscathed. Like Ridwan of Aleppo, the warlord of Damascus calculated that too much success by Maudud would result in Sultan Muhammad imposing his control over Syria. After Maudud's assassination, Muhammad Tapar remained determined to wage war against the Franks. In 1115, the Seljuk Sultan appointed Bursuk, Amir of Hamadan, to lead a new campaign against the Crusader states. This time, Tugtigin of Damascus did not even attempt to conceal his fear that the Sultan's armies posed a greater danger to him than the infidels. He allied with the Franks. When Bursuk advanced into Syria, he discovered arrayed against him the Askar of Damascus alongside the field armies of Jerusalem, Tripoli, Antioch, and Edessa. Rather than challenge this imposing host, the Sultan's general pretended to withdraw. Believing the threat had passed, the Grand Army disbanded. Then Bursuk suddenly turned and attacked the Principality of Antioch in September 1115. Roger, Prince of Antioch, was a young man, but already a capable warrior. He now faced the dilemma that every Turkic invasion brought. Should he challenge the invaders immediately or wait for reinforcements from the other Crusader states, knowing that his lands would be devastated in the meantime? Roger chose to fight. Hastily mustering whatever Antiochene troops he could, and joined by his faithful Edessan allies, in all 700 cavalry and 2,000 infantry, he set out to seek battle with the Turks. On September 14, 1115, Roger of Antioch found Bursuk of Hamadan in the valley of Danith, between Antioch and Aleppo. The Turks were 8,000 strong and badly outnumbered the Franks but they were taken by surprise. Bursuk barely had time to leave his camp and array his army on the hill of Teldanith before the Franks were upon him. The resulting battle amply demonstrated the power of the Frankish charge. Roger deployed his cavalry in five squadrons. The Turk pulls on the extreme left wing, the Edessans beside them, then Roger and his own knights forming the center and right wing. The Edessans charged first, smashing into the enemy line. After breaking their lances on the initial impact, the Edessans drew their swords and began carving their way through the Turks. But in the meantime, the Turkopoles were overwhelmed and routed by the enemy horse archers. 
victorious Turkic horsemen raced around the Frankish army and began attacking the Antiochene squadrons from behind. Coolly, Roger sent his reserves to hold off this attack. He then led his knights in a charge directly at Bursuk and his Askar. The Turkic army collapsed immediately and fled the field. Teldanath was a complete victory for the Franks. As the remnants of Bursuk's army retreated through Syria, they were set upon by the troops of Tuktigan of Damascus. Bursuk's campaign was the last major effort by the Seljuk sultans of Baghdad against the Crusader states. In 1118, Sultan Muhammad Tapar died, and the Seljuk realms were once again roiled by civil war. The story of the Seljuk sultans' failed campaigns against the Franks puts paid to any notion that the Crusades were a clash between two monolithic civilizations. In Syria, the sultans' generals learned to their cost that the local warlords could be more murderous enemies than the infidels. For their part, the warlords came to view the sultans' jihad against the crusader states as an unacceptable threat to their own independence. In the highly fragmented, viciously competitive political landscape of the Muslim Middle East, personal ambition and self-preservation were often stronger motivations than religion. After Teldanath, Prince Roger renewed Antioch's advance on Aleppo. Its old ruler, the Seljuk princeling Ridwan, had died in 1113. The people of Aleppo drove out the prince's assassin friends, but then their city fell into disorder as the successors of Ridwan fought for power. Roger of Antioch faced little effective opposition as he systematically took the towns and fortresses neighboring Aleppo. By 1119, he had Aleppo almost completely surrounded. The Aleppans now frantically searched for help from the various Turkic warlords. Their first choice was Tugtigan of Damascus, but that ever-flexible political contortionist was then embroiled in a war against the Kingdom of Jerusalem. The Aleppans next went to Mosul. Its emir, caught up in the power struggles for the Seljuk heartland, turned them down. At last, the Aleppans besieged Ilghazi, the emir of Mardin. In this appeal, Ilghazi saw an opportunity to seize Aleppo for himself. He therefore agreed to help. As we've seen, Turkic warlords were hardly a delicate and demure bunch. But even among them, Ilghazi had a terrifying reputation for cruelty and ruthlessness. Furthermore, as Lord of Mardin, he had access to the manpower of the Jazeera, the region between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that was one of the major transit points for the nomadic tribes moving down from the steppes into the Middle East. From these tribes, Ilghazi recruited a massive army of superb Turkic horse archers. He then set off westward for the Principality of Antioch. In June 1119, Roger of Antioch learned of Ilghazi's approach. The prince immediately called up the armies of Antioch and Edessa. He also asked for help from Jerusalem and Tripoli. No less a figure than the Patriarch of Antioch, the principality's supreme religious authority, urged Roger to wait for the arrival of the other Frankish armies. However, Roger, perhaps with his great victory at Teldanath in mind, rejected this advice. He made the fateful, and as it turned out, fatal decision to challenge Ilghazi to battle. Ilghazi's army was besieging the important Antiochene frontier castle of Al-Atharib. Leading a force of perhaps 7,000 cavalry and infantry, Roger closed quickly, 
possibly hoping to surprise the Turks as he had done at Teldana. But Ilgazi struck first. The Turks outnumbered the Franks by at least three to one. The fast-moving nomads suddenly engulfed their enemies from three directions. If Teldanath had demonstrated the Frankish strengths of the charge in the close combat melee, this battle was a devastating display of Turkic mobility, firepower, and overwhelming numbers. Under a storm of arrows, Roger managed to stake out his troops into battle formation. His knights, deployed in five squadrons, immediately charged. At first, the Franks did well. The Confraternity of St. Peter, a crack unit of the army of Antioch, penetrated deeply into the enemy ranks. Then catastrophe struck. The Turkopoles were overrun and routed. The fleeing Christian horse archers crashed into the squadron of Prince Roger, throwing it into disorder. Ilgazi immediately exploited this opening, sending his horsemen to envelop the flanks and rear of the Franks. The Turks softened up their foes with barrages of arrows, then closed in for the kill. Prince Roger died, stabbed through the brain by a Turk's sword, and his household knights fell all around him. The surviving Franks retreated to a hilltop to make a last stand. The Franks would call this disastrous defeat Ager Sanguinis, the Field of Blood. Its aftermath was equally terrible. Following the traditions of the steppes, the victorious Turks bludgeoned the Frankish wounded to death and scalped the low-ranking prisoners. The high-ranking Franks were dragged off to captivity. Ilgazi turned the skull of Robert Fitzfolk, a great lord of Antioch, into a drinking cup. Many of Ilgazi's contemporaries, Muslim and Christian, believed that having annihilated Antioch's field army and killed its ruling prince, the warlord should have marched on the city itself and taken it. Many modern historians have come to a similar conclusion. That Ilgazi did not is usually attributed to a spectacular bout of celebratory drinking that left him incapacitated for days. This story of a huge post-battle bender, however, comes to us from Usama ibn Munkid, the warrior poet of Shizar, who is present neither at Agar Sanguinis nor its aftermath. The drunken Turk was a favorite stereotype of Arabs like Usama, who used it to mock their conquerors. In fact, Ilgazi likely calculated that Antioch was simply too strongly fortified for him to take easily. Keeping his army of restless, booty-hungry nomads together during a prolonged siege would have been nearly impossible. Moreover, the field armies of Jerusalem and Tripoli soon arrived to defend the principality. Ilgazi devoted his energies to driving the Antiochene frontier back over the hills of Jabal Talat and away from Aleppo. Agar Sanguinis was a turning point for the Crusader states. The Principality of Antioch survived the defeat, barely, but it no longer possessed the military strength to conquer Aleppo on its own. The Antiochenes would make further attempts on the Muslim city, but always as junior partners of a more powerful ally, such as Jerusalem or Byzantium. The Crusader strategy of expansion now had to be taken up by the Kingdom of Jerusalem. For the first 25 years of the 12th century, the kings of Jerusalem had been occupied with fending off Egyptian invasions and conquering the cities of the Mediterranean coast. The Fatimid Caliphate of Egypt had mounted a sustained effort to reconquer Palestine. 
After the failure of a final invasion in 1126, the Fatimids switched strategies. They subsequently treated the Kingdom of Jerusalem as a buffer zone between Egypt and the Sunni Muslim states of Syria. Key to this strategy was the immensely strong fortress of Ascalon, the last Fatimid possession in Palestine. Sustained with reinforcements and supplies by the Fatimid navy, Ascalon served as a base for Egyptian raids into the Crusader states. Unable to take Ascalon, the kings of Jerusalem instead sealed it off with a cordon of castles. Even while they were repelling the Fatimid armies, the kings of Jerusalem were systematically besieging and taking the ports of Palestine. These strongly fortified cities were in the hands of Muslim emirs nominally obedient to the Fatimids. In 1123, the last of these cities, Tyre, fell to the Franks with indispensable help from a powerful Venetian fleet. The rulers of Jerusalem were now free to turn in land. These rulers were highly effective and dynamic figures. King Baldwin II, who reigned from 1118 to 1131, was a fine soldier of enormous experience and a thoughtful strategist. His heir, his daughter Melisende, was a forceful woman who would be co-ruler of the Kingdom of Jerusalem for 20 years, first alongside her husband, Fulk of Anjou, then with her son, Baldwin III. William of Tyre, the most important Christian historian of the Crusader states, was a fervent admirer despite a strong streak of male chauvinism, writing that Melisande was wise and judicious beyond what is normal for a woman. Jerusalem's sites settled on Damascus. The great urban center of southern Syria, Damascus was wealthy and populous with a significant community of Eastern Christians. To the south of the city was a rich agricultural region, the Hauran, which could provide land for new Frankish settlements as well as fiefs for more knights. Finally, taking Damascus would shield the Kingdom of Jerusalem from attacks from northern Syria and Mesopotamia. But Damascus would be a tough target to take. Its walls were strong, its Askar formidable. King Baldwin II knew that he would need to mount a methodical, meticulously prepared campaign against the city. In 1025 and 1026, he attacked Damascus's territory in order to soften up its defenses and put pressure on its rulers. At the same time, Baldwin searched for allies to reinforce the army of Jerusalem. He accomplished this goal by promising his daughter and heir Melisande's hand in marriage to Count Folk of Anjou, one of the leading lords of Western Europe. Folk agreed to take the cross and go east with a considerable army of crusaders in 1128. King Baldwin's final peace fell into place the next year. In the last years of his life, Tugtegan, the wily old warlord of Damascus, had forged an alliance with the Syrian assassins. After Tugtegan's death early in 1128, the Damascenes increasingly turned against the assassins. To shore up their position, the assassins began secret talks with Baldwin II. On September 4, 1129, the Damascenes rose up against the assassins and drove them from the city. In retaliation, the assassins handed over to the king of Jerusalem the castle of Banyas on the borders of Galilee. With Banyas, Baldwin had a convenient base from which to attack Damascus. Baldwin II wasted no time. He assembled a powerful force consisting of the field armies of all four crusader states, a sizable contingent of Templars, and the crusaders of Folk of Anjou. 
he set out for Damascus at the end of October 1129. Yet Baldwin's campaign was destined to fail for two reasons. First, recognizing the enormity of the threat facing them, the Damascenes bankrupted themselves hiring huge numbers of Turkic mercenaries. These warriors and the Damascus Askar put up stiff resistance. The second, more important reason was that campaigning in winter made supplying the Frankish army an insurmountable problem. Stalled just short of Damascus's walls, with food running low, Baldwin sent a large force to forage for provisions in the Hauran. The Turks caught this force, surrounded, and wiped it out. The king of Jerusalem then had no choice but to retreat to Banyas. Baldwin II's attempt had fallen just short of success. It would turn out to be the Franks' best opportunity to take Damascus, for afterward, the Franks would face an immensely dangerous new enemy, the warlord Imad al-Din Zengi. Energetic, ambitious, extravagantly cruel, and utterly ruthless, Zengi would put an end to the political fragmentation of Muslim Syria as well as deal a heavy blow against the Crusader states. He was himself the product of Syria's deadly internecine politics. His father, the Emir of Aleppo and a high-ranking Mamluk belonging to Sultan Malik Shah, was murdered in 1094 when Zengi was just 10. Brought up as a ward of the Emir of Mosul, Zengi fought in the Seljuk civil wars. Always choosing the winning side, he gained a reputation as a capable soldier and rose steadily in the esteem of the sultans. His breakthrough came in 1127, when Sultan Mahmud II granted him Mosul as an ikta. Zengi then embarked on a spectacular and relentless career of conquest. One of his first and most significant acquisitions was his birthplace of Aleppo, which he seized in 1128. Afterward, he swallowed up warlord state after warlord state across Syria and Mesopotamia. As Zengi gained in power and prominence, Muslim warriors rushed to take service with him. Among these warriors was a clan of Kurds from the Araxes Valley in western Azerbaijan. The clan's patriarch, Najm al-Din Ayyub, became one of Zengi's most trusted lieutenants. The clan came to be called the Ayyubids after him. Ayyub's brother, Asad al-Din Shirku, was a superb commander who would play a starring role in the wars against the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Ayyub's son Yusuf would become better known as Salah al-Din, Saladin. Zengi's inexorable expansion dramatically transformed the relationship between Crusader Jerusalem and Muslim Damascus. The rulers of Damascus, the descendants of Tugtegin, desperately needed allies to help them keep their independence against Zengi. In 1130, just a year after Baldwin II's failed attack, they entered an entente with Jerusalem. For their part, the Franks regarded a friendly Damascus as an indispensable shield against the new Muslim power. In fact, for a long time, Zengi had little interest in the Crusader states. He devoted much of his attention and resources to the endless struggles over the Seljuk heartlands in Iran and Iraq. In addition, he strove to subjugate the Jazeera and its Turkic tribes. But Zengi was nothing if not opportunistic. In November 1144, he spied an opening in the county of Edessa. Its ruler, Count Jocelyn, was away from his capital. The forces of Antioch were engaged against the Byzantines. 
Jerusalem was also distracted, in its case, by the recent death of King Fulk in a hunting accident. Gathering a huge army from Mosul and the Jazeera, Zengi suddenly swept down on the city of Edessa. His Turkic warriors made short work of the few defenders, then began a terrible sack. According to the Damascus historian Ibn al-Kalanisi, the Turks set to pillaging, slaying, capturing, ravishing, and looting, and their hands were filled with such quantities of money, furnishings, animals, booty, and captives as rejoiced their spirits and gladdened their hearts. Zengi spared the native eastern Christians, but massacred all the Franks. Isolated, landlocked, and populated by few Franks, Edessa was always the weakest of the Crusader states. Its survival had always depended on the disunity of the surrounding Muslim powers. Nevertheless, its fall was a strategic disaster for the Franks. Edessa had acted as a kind of forward bastion for the other Crusader states. Without it, Jerusalem, Tripoli, and especially Antioch were far more exposed to Muslim attack. By destroying the first crusader state, many Muslim writers later claimed that Zengi had at last embraced the cause of jihad. In fact, the warlord was simply continuing his long pattern of grasping at any weakness within his reach. Soon enough, he returned to attacking fellow Muslims. In 1146, he was besieging the Arab stronghold of Kalat Jabr when a disgruntled Frankish slave named Yarankash stabbed him to death. The rulers of Jerusalem tried to take advantage of the death of Zengi. In 1147, King Baldwin III renewed the effort to conquer Damascus. He led his army into the Hauran, aiming to capture the towns of Basra and Sarkad. Baldwin claimed that because the invasion was not directed at Damascus itself, the Entente with the Muslims still held. Damascus's warlord, the Atabey Unur, saw through this ruse. He appealed for help to the sons of Zengi, who poured their forces into the region and drove out the Jerusalemites. Meanwhile, the loss of Edessa had sent shockwaves through Latin Christendom. On December 1, 1145, Pope Eugenius III issued the bull Quantum Praedicisoris, calling on King Louis VII of France and his nobles to gird themselves to oppose the multitude of infidels who are now rejoicing in the victory they have gained over us. The Pope promised that those who died on the expedition will receive the fruit of everlasting recompense from the rewarder of all good people. In addition, Bernard of Clairvaux, the greatest religious figure of the day, threw himself into preaching the crusade. By 1147, the great expedition called the Second Crusade was on its way to the east. It consisted of the armies of King Louis VII of France and Conrad III, King of the Germans. The Second Crusade ended up a fiasco. On their way to the Middle East, the French and German armies were decimated by the Seljuk Turks of Anatolia. Only a rump made it. Furthermore, when King Louis arrived in Antioch in March 1147, he was shocked when Prince Raymond declared that Edessa was lost forever and advised an attack on Aleppo instead. Louis refused and insisted on continuing to Jerusalem. The quarrel of the French king with the Prince of Antioch revealed the profound differences between the Crusaders from Europe and the Franks of Outremer. The Europeans were fired by the religiously motivated zeal of the crusading movement, while the local Franks were pursuing goals that were fully enmeshed in the region's political and strategic context. 
the differences between Europeans and the Franks of Outremer, the so-called Poulain, were made even clearer by what happened next. At Jerusalem, Louis and the French were joined by Conrad and the Germans. King Baldwin III of Jerusalem and his nobles then persuaded the European crusaders to attack Damascus. With these reinforcements, Baldwin hoped that the Franks were at last strong enough to take and hold the city. The combined armies set out from Tiberias in the Galilee in mid-July 1148. When they reached the vicinity of Damascus, they met fierce resistance, not just from local forces, but from large numbers of volunteers from all over the Muslim world. The Crusaders and Jerusalemites managed to fight their way to Damascus's walls. There they stalled and could go no further. While this was happening, the sons of Zengi massed their armies outside Homs and prepared to intervene. The Damascene historian Ibn al-Kalanisi describes the result. Reports reached the Franks from several quarters of the rapid advance of the Islamic armies to engage in the holy war against them and of their eagerness to exterminate them, and they became convinced of their own destruction and of the imminence of disaster. The Crusaders and the army of Jerusalem ignominiously retreated to Christian territory. The European Crusaders blamed the debacle of the siege of Damascus on the Franks of Outremer to ensure the rapid departure of the Jerusalem nobles from the vicinity of their city. The Damascenes had offered them a considerable bribe, and this led the Western Crusaders to believe they had been betrayed. In the words of William of Tyre, who was himself a native of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, relations between the Crusaders and Franks were then permanently poisoned. The pilgrim princes therefore took counsel with one another. All too clearly, they now perceived the treachery of those to whose loyalty they had entrusted their lives and interests, and abhorred the perfidy by which they had been deceived. Convinced that their undertaking had no chance of success, they determined to abandon it and return home. Thus, because of our sins, the kings and princes who had gathered in untold numbers were compelled to retreat without accomplishing their purpose. Covered with confusion and fear, they returned to the kingdom over the same road by which they had come. Henceforth, as long as they remained in the Orient, and indeed ever after, they looked askance on all the ways of our leaders. Not only was this true in regard to themselves, but their influence caused others who had not been present to slacken in love toward the kingdom. As a result, fewer people and those less fervent in spirit undertook this pilgrimage thereafter. Moreover, even to the present day, those who do come fear lest they be caught in the same toils, and hence make as short a stay as possible. The Second Crusade was also a turning point for the Muslim world, for the successful defense of Damascus showed that the spirit of jihad was finally reviving. The city's forces had been bolstered by large numbers of Muslim volunteers who wished to wage holy war against the infidels. The defense had been inspired and led by holy men, several of whom had died in battle. Jonathan Phillips, a leading historian of the Crusades and the author of a new biography of Saladin, calls this revived jihad the counter-crusade to describe how Islam's doctrine of holy war became focused on the recapture of Jerusalem and the expulsion of the Franks from the Middle East. Even more importantly, jihad would now acquire a powerful champion. The sons of Imad al-Din Zengi had inherited his empire, thus founding a warlord dynasty called the Zengids. The greatest of the Zengids was Nur al-Din, ruler of Aleppo. 
an outstanding warrior and statesman, Nur al-Din was every bit as ambitious as his father. But unlike Zengi, whose own piety could charitably be described as casual, Nur al-Din embraced, amplified, and channeled the counter-crusade. In the process, he created a new style of Islamic leadership that transformed the character of the wars against the crusader states. Shortly after the failed Christian siege of Damascus, Nur al-Din began to call himself a Mujahid, a warrior of the Holy War, and adopted a personally austere, ostentatiously pious lifestyle. To create visible testaments of his devotion to Islam, he conducted an extensive campaign of building hospitals, mosques, and religious schools, or madrasas. He also allied himself with rising religious groups such as a new class of professional Islamic scholars and the Sufis, whose mystical and esoteric form of Islam was burgeoning in popularity. The scholars and mystics, in return, waged a propaganda war on Nur al-Din's behalf, extolling him as the fighter of the faith against the infidels and heretics such as the assassins. Nur al-Din shrewdly cultivated the Abbasid Caliph, whose power and influence were rising as the Seljuk Sultanate waned. But Nur al-Din's immediate goal was not the Crusader states, but Damascus. The successors of Tugtigan had managed to hang on to their independence by playing off the kings of Jerusalem against the Zengids. After the repulse of the Second Crusade, they had re-established a rapprochement with the Franks, Nur al-Din longed to end this state of affairs and finally annex the prize that had eluded even his father. In 1154, he decided that moment had come. Baldwin III of Jerusalem had exhausted his army in a successful siege of the Egyptian-held fortress of Ascalon the previous year. With the Frankish kingdom unable to intervene, Nur al-Din marched into Damascus unopposed. The fall of Damascus to the Zengids represented a sea change in the Middle East. All Syria was now united under a single ruler, whose championing of the counter-crusade gave him great influence across the Muslim world. Nur al-Din's military resources were formidable. His Askar fielded 6,000 well-equipped and well-trained professional cavalry. He could reinforce them with large numbers of nomad mercenaries from the Jazeera and the Steppe. Occasionally, his armies numbered 15,000 superb mounted warriors. For the Crusader states, Zengid Syria represented a strategic and military nightmare. The only viable answer was to double down on the strategy of expansion, but only one target now remained open to the Franks, Egypt. Extraordinarily wealthy and with a large population of Coptic Christians, Egypt possessed the economic and demographic resources to restore the Crusader states at least to parity with Nur al-Din. Moreover, by the middle of the 12th century, Egypt appeared very vulnerable to conquest. The once mighty Shiite Fatimid Caliphate was trapped in a death spiral of internal power struggles and civil wars. King Baldwin III, King Baldwin III had drawn up the Egyptian strategy and accomplished a vital first step by taking Ascalon, which opened up the invasion route to the Nile Delta. But before Baldwin could take the next steps, he died in 1163. His brother Amalric inherited both the throne of Jerusalem and the Egyptian strategy. From Damascus, Nur al-Din was closely observing the decay of the Fatimid regime, and he quickly became aware of the king of Jerusalem's interest in Egypt. 
to forestall a Frankish conquest and ultimately to add Egypt to his own domains, Nur al-Din dispatched there one of his best generals, the Kurd Shirku. Shirku was the brother of Ayyub and the uncle of Saladin. William of Tyre provides fine descriptions of both Amalric and Shirku. The king of Jerusalem had a fair complexion and blonde receding hair. He was also immensely fat, so much so that he had breasts like those of a woman hanging down to his waist. When something amused him, his body jiggled and shook with laughter. Possessed with a sharp mind and a powerful memory, Amalric was a strong king and exceptionally able commander. Shirku was very short but hugely obese. He was also blinded in one eye by a cataract. Yet, he was prodigiously energetic and ferociously dynamic, fully living up to his name, which meant lion in Persian. These two men, great in girth but also talent and tenacity, would engage in an epic duel for Egypt. Amalric opened the duel in 1163 when he invaded Egypt with the field army of Jerusalem. The Fatimid army intercepted the invaders somewhere on the eastern approaches to the Nile Delta. The Fatimids did not have a Turkic-style force. Their army instead resembled Jerusalem's. It consisted of Armenian heavy cavalry and black African infantry. The large and lavishly equipped the Fatimid army had compiled a miserable record of failure against the Franks. Now it failed again. Amalric routed it and advanced on Cairo. The desperate Fatimid government broke the Nile dikes and flooded the land before Amalric's army. Foiled, the king of Jerusalem withdrew back to his lands. Amalric's invasion had laid bare Egypt's vulnerability. In 1164, the Fatimid government appealed to Nur al-Din for help. The warlord sent Shirku with an army to Egypt. Shirku installed an ally named Shawar as vizier or chief minister of the Fatimid Caliph. Immediately, Shawar realized that his Kurdish patron was intent on making himself the real power in the land. The vizier contacted King Amalric and offered him the enormous sum of 400,000 dinars if he would invade Egypt and drive out the Turks. Amalric duly did so. Yet before he could secure Egypt, Nur al-Din invaded the kingdom of Jerusalem and the county of Tripoli. Amalric was forced to hasten home with his army. In 1166, Shirku returned. To prop up the vizier Shawar, who is now his ally, Amalric once again marched with his army into Egypt. The wily Shirku managed to lure the Egyptian Frankish army into the desert and defeat it but the indomitable Amalric then trapped Shirku in Alexandria. The Kurdish general was forced to negotiate his release and return to Syria. Before returning to his own kingdom, Amalric installed a garrison in the citadel of Cairo. Amalric was now at the height of his power in Egypt. He had reduced the Fatimid regime of Shawar effectively to a client state. Yet now the king of Jerusalem overreached. In 1168, he decided to conquer Egypt outright. He poured all of Jerusalem's resources into mobilizing the largest field army possible. In addition, the Hospitallers agreed to furnish a considerable force in exchange for privileges in newly conquered Egypt. In response, Shawar and the Fatimid regime switched alliances again. They appealed to Nur al-Din for help. Shirku set out from Syria with a formidable army of 8,500 horsemen his own personal regiment of 500 Mamluks and Kurds, 
2,000 regular cavalry from Nur al-Din's Askar, and 6,000 nomad mercenaries. Amalric besieged Cairo, but was resisted stoutly by its people. The king then allowed himself to be bought off by Shawar. Meanwhile, Shirku eluded all Frankish attempts to intercept him and arrived in Egypt. Shirku had finally won the duel. The Kurdish general sealed his victory by getting rid of Shawar. According to one account, Saladin and several Mamluks set upon the vizier, threw him to the ground, and ran him through repeatedly. Shirku then had the Fatimid Caliph appoint him the new vizier of Egypt. Amalric had lost because he had rolled the dice on a quick and complete conquest of Egypt. His decision had driven his erstwhile Fatimid allies back into the open arms of Nur al-Din and Shirku. Yet he had good reasons for his impatience. Each time he took the field army of Jerusalem into Egypt, he was leaving the Crusader states open to the depredations of Nur al-Din. Frankish fighting men were so scarce that Amalric could only muster one army at a time. Antioch, once the other major crusader state, had been so weakened by Agar Sanguinis and subsequent defeats that it could no longer field large armies of its own. Nur al-Din had no such limitations. Even as he sent Shirku with considerable forces into Egypt, he could unleash other armies to wreak havoc on the frontier defenses of the Crusader states and despoil their territory. No less an authority than the Master of the Templars understood Amalric's plight. In November 1164, he explained to a correspondent in Europe that, although our King Amalric is great and magnificent, he cannot organize a fourfold army to defend Antioch, Tripoli, Jerusalem, and Egypt, in which he remains with his sons, and which is most to be feared. But Nur al-Din can attack all four at once, and the same time if he desires. So great is the number of his troops. Amalric's only solution to this dilemma was to gamble on a final solution to the Egypt crisis, one which would finally free him up and his army to face Nur al-Din. It is also difficult to see what Amalric could have done differently. Only by conquering Egypt could the Franks hope to match Muslim manpower. The strategy of expansion was the correct one. In the end, Amalric just did not have the resources to pull it off. Nevertheless, the strategy's failure profoundly worsened the Franks' nightmare. With Egypt and Syria now united under a single ruler, the Crusader states were surrounded. Moreover, the Muslim preponderance in resources and manpower was now overwhelming. Finally, the Crusader states were about to face the greatest Muslim warlord of them all. In the spring of 1169, Shirku was euphoric. The Kurdish warrior was now the most powerful man in the wealthiest country in the Middle East. He celebrated with a great feast. As always on such occasions, he overate mightily, gorging himself on his favorite dishes of richly sauced meats. This time, though, he went too far. Agonizing indigestion overcame him. On March 22nd, Shirku died. Shirku's gifted nephew, Saladin, moved swiftly to succeed him. He had won over his uncle's inner circle of supporters, the Kurdish and Turkic commanders of his army, and the civil servants who ran the Egyptian state. Then Saladin had the Fatimid Caliph appoint him vizier. At the time of his ascent to power, Saladin was about 30 years old. 
he had grown up as a typical Muslim nobleman in the court of Nur al-Din in Damascus. During the duel for Egypt, he began to display considerable military and administrative acumen. He became one of his uncle's most trusted commanders. During Shirku's brief tenure as vizier, Saladin ran the day-to-day government of Egypt. His most outstanding quality was his generosity. He lavished money and gifts on those willing to support him in the process binding them closer to him. Saladin immediately faced two serious challenges to his grip on Egypt. The first challenge was an uprising in Cairo by the black African infantry of the Fatimid army. The most loyal adherents of the Shiite caliphs, the Africans opposed the ascendancy of the Sunni Turks. Saladin ruthlessly crushed their revolt. He first sent his cavalry to attack the Africans' families. Then, when the black infantrymen arrived to protect their wives and children, Saladin slaughtered them all. This savage episode secured Saladin's military supremacy within Egypt. But the second, even more serious challenge came from outside the country. In October 1169, King Amalric of Jerusalem launched his last invasion of Egypt. This time, the field army of Jerusalem was joined by a massive Byzantine armada of 200 ships. The combined forces laid siege to the city of Damietta in the eastern reaches of the Nile Delta by land and sea. Saladin conducted a tenacious and effective defense. After 50 days of tough fighting, the determination of the Christian coalition crumbled. Amalric and the Byzantines agreed to withdraw in exchange for tribute payments from Saladin. Gifts and money were duly sent from Egypt to the emperor of Byzantium in Constantinople. But the repulse of such powerful Christian forces established Saladin as a great captain and an able ruler. Having seen off these challenges, Saladin felt able to deal with the Fatimid Caliphate. For two years, he had kept the Shiite Caliph in office. Pressure from both Nur al-Din and the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad, as well as his own desire to burnish his credentials as a Sunni leader, prompted Saladin to act. Taking advantage of the fortuitous death of the incumbent Caliph in September 1171, Saladin abolished the Fatimid Caliphate and placed Egypt under the nominal suzerainty of the Abbasids of Baghdad. Saladin had enjoyed a remarkable rise to power, but now he had to face Nur al-Din. From the beginning of the duel for Egypt, the great Zengid warlord had kept a suspicious eye on his Kurdish vassals. When Shirku had gone on his third and decisive expedition to Egypt, Nur al-Din had saddled him with several of his most loyal Turkic amirs. The suspicion was subsequently transferred to Saladin, For his part, Saladin appeared to have decided early on to create his own independent Ayyubid state. Yet he calculated that he could not openly break with Nur al-Din too soon. Saladin therefore continued to claim that he remained a loyal vassal of the Zengid, who was simply governing Egypt on his behalf. Tensions between Saladin and Nur al-Din escalated over the Crusader states. Nur al-Din expected his vassal in Cairo to join him in his attacks on the Christians. A coordinated effort from Egypt and Syria would have put Jerusalem in the jaws of a vice. Yet Saladin feared that if Nur al-Din were ever to crush the Franks, the Zengid warlord would attack him next. He therefore prevaricated whenever Nur al-Din ordered him to attack the kingdom of Jerusalem. 
the most notorious incident occurred in the autumn of 1171, when the Zengid planned to besiege the powerful castle of Karak in the Outre-Jourdain. Karak sat squarely on one of the principal roads connecting Syria to Egypt. It also served as a base for the Christians to raid the pilgrim routes going to Mecca and Medina. Nur al-Din commanded Saladin to bring his Egyptian forces to help with the siege. Saladin at first appeared to obey. He approached to within a day's march of Karak, only to turn around and return to Egypt. In the spring of 1174, Nur al-Din at last lost patience with his disobedient vassal. He prepared to invade Egypt, mobilizing the armies of Aleppo and Damascus and summoning additional forces from Mosul and the Jazeera. A war between the two greatest Muslim warlords of the Middle East appeared imminent. For the Franks, this course of events appeared heaven-sent. Then Saladin got lucky. As a historian, I'm trained to be skeptical of the effects of chance or luck on the past, to always look instead for deeper causes for major events. The outbreak of the First World War, for instance, had little to do with a confused Austrian chauffeur driving the Archduke Franz Ferdinand's car down the wrong street in Sarajevo and suddenly breaking in front of Gavrilo Princip. There were German militarism, French revanchism, Serbian nationalism, Russian imperialism, and the system of great power alliances. Yet, from time to time, I can't help see contingency, fortune, chance, luck, 12th century people might even say Allah or God, reaching out a finger and giving the wheel of history an irresistible push. So it was with Saladin, for just as Nur al-Din was gathering his armies, he suddenly fell ill. Pus-filled abscesses swelled in the Syrian warlord's throat, then spread infection throughout his body. On May 15, 1174, Nur al-Din died in the citadel of Damascus. His son and heir was just 11 years old, and various members of the Zengid dynasty struggled with each other to assert control over the boy. The vast Zengid realm fractured into warring factions. And luck was still not done with Saladin. Just two months after Nur al-Din's death, in July 1174, the formidable King Amalric of Jerusalem, Shirku's old foe, died of dysentery. As with Nur al-Din, Amalric's successor was a young boy, the 13-year-old Baldwin IV. But even worse, Baldwin was seriously ill. The historian William of Tyre had been the boy's tutor. When Baldwin was nine, William had noticed a numbness in his right arm and hand. Despite the best efforts of the finest doctors of Jerusalem, the numbness never went away. It proved to be the first signs of leprosy, a disfiguring, incapacitating, ultimately fatal disease. Having a child and a leper as king condemned Jerusalem to many years of political instability. With his two main rivals falling into crisis, immense prospects now opened up before Saladin. In October 1174, ferocious factional fighting among the Zengids forced Damascus to appeal to him for protection. The Kurdish warlord assembled 700 of his finest cavalrymen. He then rushed across the Sinai, snuck past the Frankish fortresses of Montréal and Karak, and entered Damascus. The city and its lands were incorporated into Saladin's expanding empire. Saladin did not just have designs on Nur al-Din's Syrian dominions. He also assumed the dead Zengid warlord's leadership of the Jihad, the counter-crusade against the Franks. 
After taking Damascus, he wrote two letters to the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad, announcing that he was the most effective leader of Sunni Islam, that only he could defeat the infidel Franks. He also made a bold promise. He would reconquer Jerusalem and restore the Dome of the Rock to Islam. Saladin's embrace of jihad came out of a mixture of motives. We cannot discount his own personal devotion. After all, Saladin had been a 10-year-old boy living in Damascus when the armies of Jerusalem and the Second Crusade besieged the city and ignited the spirit of Muslim resistance. He had then passed his youth and young manhood in the court of Nur al-Din. His formative years were therefore spent in a milieu saturated with the values and ideas of the counter-crusade. Yet, in addition to his own personal zeal, there were good political reasons to embrace jihad. By proclaiming himself the champion of holy war, Saladin gained an important ideological edge over his Zengid enemies, as he could claim that taking over all of Syria would reinforce his war against the Franks. Lastly, jihad buttressed Saladin's legitimacy and strengthened his control over his diverse realm. He was the Kurdish ruler of a Turkic-dominated empire of many ethnicities. The counter-crusade served as the glue binding it all together. Despite Saladin's declared commitment to the counter-crusade, his main enemies for much of the decade following his seizure of Damascus were the Zengids. As Steve Tibble points out, ironically, the majority of Saladin's enemies, the majority of the states he attacked, and the majority of the lands his troops occupied were Muslim rather than Christian. His immediate target was Aleppo. To give himself a free hand, he signed a truce with the Kingdom of Jerusalem in 1175. He then fought and won two major battlefield victories against his Zengid enemies. Yet Aleppo proved too strongly fortified and too determined to resist to fall to Saladin in a single stroke. He was forced to wear down the city gradually through an eight-year-long campaign of blockades, raids, the taking of nearby strongholds, and diplomatic pressure. Saladin's successes in Syria exposed him to new dangers. The Zengids made common cause with the dreaded Syrian assassins, who were themselves worried about Saladin's growing power. In January 1175, a team of assassins infiltrated Saladin's camp while he was campaigning against Aleppo. Fortunately for Saladin, a local emir who had just joined his army recognized the men and alerted the warlord's Mamluks, who managed to cut them down. A second attempt in May 1176 was far more dangerous. This time, the assassins managed to enter Saladin's tent. One of them rushed at the warlord and stabbed him with a dagger. Fortunately, because Saladin was on campaign, he was wearing armor. His chainmail hood turned the dagger aside. His bodyguards then brought his assailants down. These two attempts on his life forced Saladin to move directly against the assassin. He besieged the sect's main stronghold of Masya in the forbidding mountains of the Jebel Ansariya. But Masya was a powerful castle and fanatically defended. After a fruitless and costly siege, Saladin negotiated a truce with the assassin. Under the truce's terms, the assassins agreed not to make any further attempts on Saladin or his family. Following his battlefield victories against the Zengids and his neutralization of the assassins, Saladin felt confident that he had gained the upper hand in Syria. He returned to Egypt and there turned his attention to other pressing matters. By proclaiming himself the champion of the holy war, 
he had created enormous expectations among his subjects, his followers, and other Muslim potentates that he would take the fight to the infidel ranks. His prestige and legitimacy depended on meeting these expectations. In the fall of 1177, Saladin spotted an opportunity to do just that. Most of the field army of Jerusalem had gone north to help the forces of Antioch besiege the Muslim fortress of Harib. Moreover, the kingdom's leadership appeared weak. King Baldwin IV was just 16 and fully in the throes of his leprosy. Saladin quickly gathered his army. Its core consisted of his Egyptian askar of 8,000 professional cavalrymen. They included his elite bodyguard of 1,000 troopers who, according to William of Tyre, wore over their breastplates silk robes in yellow, Saladin's personal color. The Askar was supplemented by huge numbers of Turkic, Bedouin, and Berber mercenaries bought by Egypt's wealth. All in all, according to the best estimates, Saladin's army was 24,000 strong. When Saladin's army crossed the frontier into the kingdom of Jerusalem, its size convinced many Franks that the Muslim warlord was bent on conquest. However, Saladin had not brought any siege equipment or specialist troops with him. He was mounting a massive raid meant to erode Jerusalem's defenses and uphold his status as the champion of the Holy War. Saladin's troops flooded the countryside, burning, looting, killing any peasants too slow to flee to safety. Yet, In his first major challenge against the kingdom of Jerusalem, Saladin seriously underestimated the determination and fighting prowess of the Franks. Despite his youth and his illness, Baldwin proved to be a courageous and redoubtable warrior king. He rushed to Ascalon, the great stronghold on the Egyptian frontier, and summoned every man who could bear arms to join him. Among those who answered the king's call was one of the most colorful and controversial figures in the entire history of the Crusader states, Reynald de Chatillon. The scion of a Burgundian noble family, Reynald had come to the east as a mercenary knight and was present when Baldwin III took Ascalon from the Egyptians. In 1153, he married Princess Constance of Antioch and so became the ruler of the principality, leading Antioch's forces. Reynald acquired a reputation among the Muslims as a fearsomely effective and utterly ruthless commander. In November 1161, however, Reynald was captured by his enemies. He spent the next 15 years languishing in the dungeons of Aleppo. Released following payment of an enormous ransom, Reynald made a second advantageous marriage, Constance having died while he was imprisoned, to the heiress of the great fief of Outre-Jordan. His time in captivity only deepened his hatred of Muslims. Reynald de Chatillon would become one of Saladin's most inveterate enemies and a major protagonist in the events leading up to the Battle of Hattin. In addition to Reynald de Chatillon, Baldwin received two further reinforcements. The first was the Templar Grand Master and a hundred knight brothers from the Order's fortress at Gaza. With them, the king commanded a little under 500 knights perhaps the same number of turcopoles and other light-armed cavalry and a few thousand infantry, a force outnumbered many times over by Saladin's host. So the second reinforcement was doubly welcome, the true cross, a fragment of the very crucifix on which Christ himself had died. The holiest relic in the kingdom of Jerusalem, it was believed to bring victory whenever it was born into battle. 
Ignoring Baldwin's contemptible little army, Saladin swept past Ascalon and drove deeper into the kingdom. Along the way, he unleashed his mercenaries to maraud and devastate the countryside in a wide radius. Baldwin set out in pursuit. Because the coastal plain north of Ascalon was blanketed by prowling enemy horsemen, his army adopted the fighting march formation from the beginning. It was extraordinarily difficult for the Franks to surprise a swifter, nimbler Turkic coast. Baldwin managed to do so. On November 25, 1177, he caught Saladin near a hill called Montgisar, eight kilometers southeast of Ramla. At the unexpected appearance of the Franks, Saladin frantically recalled his marauding cavalry. He also hastily shook out his army into battle formation. His troops still vastly outnumbered the enemy. To no avail. What happened next was a demonstration of the brutal force of the Frankish charge. Tactical command of the army of Jerusalem was entrusted to Reynald de Chatillon. He instantly ordered the knights to form up and charge aiming for the cluster of yellow banners that marked where Saladin and his bodyguards stood in the middle of the Askar of Egypt. As the army's elite shock troops, the Templars took the lead. They lanced into the enemy, followed by the rest of the knights, then the Turkopoles, sergeants, and squires. The Askar was smashed apart. Hundreds of Saladin's best troopers fell instantly. The rest spurred their mounts into headlong flight. The Templars hacked their way toward the warlord. One determined knight brother almost reached him before Saladin's Mamluks brought him down. Saladin himself then fled. For the kingdom of Jerusalem, Montgisar was a great victory. It was also costly. One of the few hospitallers who took part, most of the order had gone off to fight in the north, reported that the hospital of Jerusalem treated some 2,000 Christian casualties. But Saladin's army suffered much worse. In addition to the enormous Muslim losses on the battlefield, the survivors were harried mercilessly all the way back to Egypt by Turkopoles, Christian peasants, and nomadic Bedouin. Only a remnant of Saladin's great army ever reached safety. Saladin never forgot Mojizar. He never again underestimated the tenacity or battlefield prowess of the Franks. He also learned more specific lessons. His Askar needed to be improved so that it could better withstand the knights. He poured resources into increasing its size as well as improving its troops' training and equipment. The Askar troops would never quite match the Franks in close combat, but the gap would close considerably. The other lesson Saladin learned was that he would need to bring overwhelming strength to bear against the Kingdom of Jerusalem. After 1177, he worked to combine and coordinate the two component parts of his empire, Egypt and Syria, into a single war machine. He would use the vast wealth of Egypt to better exploit Syria's deep reserves of superb nomad warriors. The result was that his armies grew ever larger and more formidable, especially during the 1180s. Baldwin IV did his best to exploit the victory of Montgisar by taking the offensive on the eastern borders of his kingdom. His most important move was to begin the construction of the powerful castle of Le Chastelet at Jacob's Ford. A key crossing point on the upper reaches of the Jordan River, Jacob's Ford was also on one of the main routes to Damascus. Today, we think that the Crusader castles mainly served a defensive function. In fact, one of the principal roles of castles was to serve as bases for offensives into enemy territory. 
Le Chastelet was perfectly positioned for launching deep raids into the Hauran, Damascus's breadbasket. Its garrison of 80 Templar knights and 1,000 other troops, a veritable army by Frankish standards, underlined its aggressive purpose. Saladin immediately recognized the danger posed by Le Chastelet. Still smarting from Montgisard, the warlord first attempted to neutralize this threat to his lands by offering Baldwin 100,000 dinars, a considerable fortune, in exchange for abandoning the castle. Only when the king of Jerusalem turned him down did Saladin resort to military measures. In May 1179, he led his main army from Damascus against Jacob's Ford. In response, King Baldwin brought out the field army of Jerusalem. The Frankish cavalry overran some of the leading elements of the Muslim forces. However, the knights pursued too far, outstripping the protection of their infantry. At Marjayun, they ran into Saladin's main body and were overwhelmed. Unable to mount his horse because of his leprosy, King Baldwin had to be picked up by one of his household knights, then his bodyguards hacked their way out of the fray. The victory at Marjayun emboldened Saladin to attack Le Chastelet directly in August 1179. Although still unfinished, the castle was nevertheless a formidable fortification, defended with fanatical determination by its large garrison. The trademark Muslim tactic in siege warfare was undermining a castle's walls. Saladin brought a full complement of expert sappers from Khorasan and Aleppo. The Frankish crossbowmen on the castle's walls took a heavy toll of besiegers. Nevertheless, the sappers managed to dig beneath and bring down a section of the walls. Saladin's troops then stormed in and overwhelmed the garrison. Saladin treated the survivors who fell into his men's hands with exemplary harshness. The Templars were executed on the spot, standard procedure for Saladin but he also meted out the same fate to the Frankish archers as punishment for the damage they had inflicted on the Muslim troops. All the other prisoners were sold into slavery. The Muslim army then demolished the half-completed castle. Today, Le Chastelet at Jacob's Ford is a remarkable archaeological site that reveals the grim brutalities of crusading warfare. The Israeli archaeologist Yossi Nagar found five skeletons in the ruins of one of the castle's buildings. They were members of the castle garrison who had retreated inside to make a last stand. The remains were surrounded by arrowheads, suggesting that the Muslim troops had poured arrows into the building at very close range, then rushed inside to finish the Franks off in hand-to-hand combat. Three of the skeletons had arrow wounds, including one who had been repeatedly hit in the neck, presumably by archers aiming below a helmet. Two skeletons bore sword or axe wounds. One Frank's end was particularly savage. His arm was cut off at the elbow. Because no trace of the lower arm was ever found inside the building, the soldier presumably had it severed by a massive sword or axe blow before he retreated there. His lower jaw was chopped in two, and there are signs of a glancing blow to the cheek. But the fatal blow struck the top of the soldier's head and split his skull in half. The victories of Marjayun and Jacob's Ford prompted Saladin to make a decisive shift in strategy. Beginning in 1180, he adopted a two-track approach. While he continued his campaign to take the Zengid stronghold of Aleppo, He also launched annual invasions of the Kingdom of Jerusalem by his increasingly powerful armies. 
the events of 1182 reveal the results of Saladin's new strategy. At the beginning of the campaigning season, Saladin led his Egyptian army to besiege the fortress of Karak. King Baldwin was now entering the terminal stages of his leprosy. Nevertheless, with a fortitude that we can scarcely imagine, he took the field with the army of Jerusalem and marched to the relief of the beleaguered stronghold. Rather than fight a pitched battle, Saladin proceeded north to Galilee. There, reinforcements from his Syrian domains brought his strength up to 20,000 men. This enormous host took the town of Baisan, then attacked the castle of Le Forbelet. Baldwin rushed there with his army, challenged Saladin's forces, and won a hard-fought victory within sight of the castle. Yet Saladin simply shrugged off this defeat, raising more troops in Syria to replace his losses. In August 1182, he attempted something unprecedented, a coordinated attack on the port of Beirut with his Egyptian navy and his Syrian army. With all of his characteristic energy and determination, Baldwin responded by requisitioning every ship in the harbors of Acre and Tyre, filling these vessels with his troops, then sending them to Beirut. At the approach of this ragtag fleet, the Egyptian ships fled without a fight, and Saladin was compelled to retreat. In 1182, Saladin had failed to take any part of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Even worse, he had suffered a battlefield defeat at Le Forbelet. But if we look closer, we can see that his efforts were not entirely fruitless. The Kurdish warlords' armies had rampaged across wide areas of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, inflicting losses on the Frankish troops, degrading frontier defenses, and devastating rural communities. More importantly, Saladin revealed that the resources at his command had become overwhelming. The first steps had been taken on the road that would end at the Horns of Hattin. The leaders of the Crusader states were acutely aware that the balance of power was shifting decisively in favor of Saladin. The rulers of Jerusalem tried to raise field armies that could at least hold their own against Saladin's hosts. They mobilized every available man of the kingdom and also found money to hire more mercenaries. In 1183, a general council of the kingdom of Jerusalem agreed on a new tax that would be paid by all subjects, with the proceeds going exclusively to the defense of the land. Yet, to quote Steve Tibble, manpower was a hard ceiling that the Franks just could not break through. The Frankish settlers and demilitarized Eastern Christians could never provide enough soldiers. Moreover, scraping the bottom of the manpower barrel invariably led to a dilution in the quality of Jerusalem's army. A peasant or urban laborer conscripted into the host and issued with a spear and a shield was simply no match for a Turkic horse archer. Mercenaries were an invaluable source of experienced and equipped troops. However, there were limits to how many were available for hire. The greatest constraints of all involved the indispensable elite of the Frankish army, the knights. Expensive to equip and the products of a lifetime of training, knights required fiefs but the kingdom of Jerusalem had simply run out of available land. With their manpower stretched to the limits, yet still falling far short of what was required to match Saladin, the Franks of Outremer turned to Europe for help. Throughout their existence, the Crusader states sent a stream of appeals for aid to the Pope and to the princes of Christendom. These appeals became urgent after 1180 and culminated with the dispatch of a high-level embassy from Jerusalem to the west in 1184. 
the ambassadors were Patriarch Heraclius, the kingdom's chief religious figure, and the masters of the military orders, Roger de Moulin of the hospital and Arnaud Taroja of the temple. To the rulers of the Holy Roman Empire, France, and England, Heraclius eloquently explained the plight of the Franks. The ambassadors demanded the calling of a third crusade, the dispatch of reinforcements for the armies of Jerusalem, and the sending of a European prince to take up the leadership of the crusader states. But the embassy was doomed to failure. The once fierce crusading fire had burned down to embers. Preoccupied by their own interests and appalled by the perils of Utremer, none of the great kings of Christendom would go to the succor of Jerusalem. The best that the ambassadors could get was a promise from Henry II of England and Philip II of France to levy a special tax for the aid of the Holy Land. According to the historian Gerald of Wales, Heraclius lamented that though everyone was willing to give money, none would go to Jerusalem. Forced to fall back on their own resources, the Franks came to increasingly depend on castles to help their outnumbered field armies defend their beleaguered lands. Castles had always covered the Crusaders' states. They ranged from simple stone towers to imposing fortresses that could shelter entire armies. But the most important and impressive were found on the eastern frontiers. From south to north, key castles included Montréal and Carac in Outre-Jordan, Belfort, Safad, and Chastelneuf in the Galilee, and Beaufort in the Beka Valley. Today, these crusader castles are considered the pinnacle of medieval military architecture. The greatest of them all, Crac de Chevalier, located on what was once the eastern marches of the county of Tripoli, is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Having withstood armies in nature for nine centuries, it is now imperiled by the Syrian civil wars. For the Franks, these frontier castles fulfilled three crucial functions. First, as we've seen with Le Chastelet at Jacob's Ford, they served as bases for offensives into enemy territory by raiding parties and even entire armies. The castle's second function is the best known, to act as defensive strongpoints. Yet how castles fulfilled this function is often misunderstood. Too many military history books blithely describe medieval fortresses blocking a pass or commanding an invasion route. In fact, they could do neither. In the absence of gunpowder artillery, castles could only project power beyond their walls to the range of an arrow or at most a catapult stone. Nowhere in our sources from the crusading period do we find a castle preventing or even hindering the advance of an army. The frontier castles were never intended to be a 12th century Maginot line, stopping Saladin's armies from penetrating into the interior of the crusader states. A castle's defensive power rested in its fighting men. Unless the garrison was kept within the walls by a close blockade, its troops could sally out to harass enemy forces and attack supply convoys. Even more importantly, the troops could contest control of the surrounding region. The frontier castle's defensive role was closely connected to their third function. They were, in R.C. Smale's words, repositories of lordship. Even if a Muslim army overran a region, the Franks would retain a kernel of dominion as long as their castles remained in their hands. Medieval armies could never remain in the field for long. Once they had departed and their danger had passed, the Franks could come out of their strongholds and restore their lordship over the surrounding area. The Muslims could thus only conquer the Frankish frontiers by taking the castles. To this task, however, 
Nur al-Din and Saladin were able to bring to bear their increasingly powerful armies. They employed the firepower of massed batteries of catapults and huge numbers of nomad archers to suppress a castle's archers and war engines. Meanwhile, large contingents of expert Khorasanian and Aleppan sappers undermined the walls. Once a section of the fortifications came down, Muslim warriors stormed through the breach and slaughtered the garrison. By the 1170s, the fortresses of the Franks were looking very vulnerable. The leaders of the Crusader states responded by remodeling their castles according to a revolutionary design. The new castles featured very deep ditches or dry moats surrounding two or even three layers of thick walls. Each layer was built higher than the one in front. The walls themselves were studded with tall round towers and defensive refinements like machicolations, bartizans, and casemates, essentially medieval pillboxes for archers. The deep ditches and thick walls effectively countered undermining. The high walls, tall towers, and covered firing positions created killing zones in front of and below the fortifications, making direct assaults prohibitively costly. By the 1180s, Frankish frontier castles could withstand sieges by even the strongest Muslim armies. They would only finally succumb once their garrisons ran out of food or water. In military parlance, these castles were hugely effective force multipliers, enabling small garrisons to defy overwhelming numbers and exert control over surrounding territories. From the Frankish perspective, the only drawback of the new castles was their enormous cost. Only a handful of feudal lords could ever hope to build one. As a result, most of the frontier castles were taken over by the military orders, which enjoyed vast resources thanks to their possession of extensive European estates. The Templars and Hospitallers came to control the marches of all the Crusader states, in the process further increasing their power and influence. These castles were key components of the Franks' new strategy of tenacious defense of their frontiers against seemingly unending Muslim invasions. Irresistible targets for Saladin's armies, the frontier castles would come under siege. Their garrisons would hold out until Jerusalem's field army came to their relief. The Franks would then be in a very strong defensive position with their army backed up by a major fortress. Saladin and his commanders would then face the difficult choice of fighting a battle on unfavorable terms or lifting the siege and withdrawing. In any event, Muslim gains would be largely limited to some localized devastation. Although the Franks' strategic posture was overwhelmingly defensive, their best commanders sought any opportunity to strike back against their enemies. In 1182, Baldwin IV launched raids into the Hauran from Galilee. But the poster child for Frankish aggressiveness was the irrepressible Reynald de Châtillon. In early 1183, Reynald had eight small ships constructed at his castle of Carrack. He then disassembled them and transported the parts by camel to the Gulf of Aqaba. The vessels were rapidly reassembled and launched, crammed with Reynald's toughest troops. The eight ships sailed down into the Red Sea, where they proceeded to wreak havoc on Muslim shipping and coastal communities. But Reynald had an even bolder intention, to land on the coast of Arabia near Medina, raid the holy city, and dig up the body of the Prophet Muhammad. Saladin bent all his resources to defeating the raids. Eventually, the raiders were all killed or captured before they could carry out Reynald's plan. 
Saladin had the prisoners publicly executed in towns and cities all over his domains. However, the raid had hugely humiliated the Kurdish warlord, not least because it mocked his claim to be the protector of Islam's holy places. The raid also showed that despite the annual invasions of their lands, the Franks were still full of fight. Yet the Frankish war effort would now be endangered by a political crisis within the kingdom of Jerusalem. Baldwin IV's leprosy condemned him to an early death. He would also be unable to produce an heir. The succession, therefore, depended on his older sister Sibylla. Finding a husband for Sibylla became a matter of paramount concern, and so Baldwin was greatly relieved when she married William Longsword of Montferrat, an important Italian nobleman, in 1177. But William Longsword died within months of the marriage, and before the birth of his son with Sibylla, the future Baldwin V. The widowed Sibylla then became infatuated with a young Frenchman who had recently arrived in Outremer named Guy de Lusignan. In August 1180, Sibylla married Guy. These soap operatic developments created dangerous enmities among the nobles of Jerusalem. Despite being from a prominent noble house with a long crusading tradition, Guy de Lusignan was disliked by many of the Frankish nobility, who regarded him as a social climber who owed his prominence to his wife. He was particularly hated by Raymond of Tripoli, Count of the Crusader State of Tripoli and Lord of Galilee. Raymond was the greatest noble in the kingdom. He was also closely related to King Baldwin IV, and so had a claim to the throne. Meanwhile, Saladin continued waging his two-front war against the Zengids and the Crusader states. In June 1183, he achieved a notable triumph when he finally took control of Aleppo. The Zengids were driven back to their remaining lands in the Jazira and Mosul. Saladin then turned on the Kingdom of Jerusalem. King Baldwin IV summoned the field army and ordered it to gather at one of its traditional mustering points, the springs of Safuria in Galilee. The king's call to arms was answered by the largest number of men in the history of the kingdom to that date, 15,000 infantry and 1,300 cavalry. To grasp just how impressive the Frankish war effort had become, we can look at the numbers involved in the 1215 Battle of Bouvines. In this battle, fought between the Holy Roman Empire and France, the two greatest kingdoms of Western Europe had armies of 1,200 horse and 6,000 foot. But King Baldwin then fell desperately ill. He gave command of the army to Guy de Lusignan and ordered the nobles of Jerusalem to obey him, which they did only grudgingly. In late September, Saladin led a powerful army over the Jordan. At first, Guy decided to remain at Safuria. This decision had considerable advantages. Safuria was well fortified, well watered, and well situated to stop Saladin from penetrating deeper into the kingdom. However, the Frankish nobles became outraged at the devastation caused by Saladin's marauding horsemen. Guy became the target of intense criticism and complaints. To quell growing unrest, he led the army out of Safuria and began shadowing Saladin's host. For eight days, the two forces sparred. The Muslim warlord sent waves of horse archers against the Franks, who were formed up in the fighting march. He also tried to provoke Guy into a pitched battle, but Guy refused to be baited. Saladin gave up and withdrew to Damascus. As in 1182, Saladin had been prevented from making any gains on Jerusalem's frontiers. 
Yet, he had inflicted heavy casualties on the Franks and devastated wide swaths of the kingdom. Perhaps most gallingly of all, the most imposing army ever fielded by Jerusalem had failed to bring the Muslims to battle. The campaign was widely considered a fiasco, and Guy de Lusignan was widely blamed. Baldwin now turned completely against his brother-in-law. The king removed Guy from command of the army and stripped him of his noble title of Count of Jaffa at Ascalon. But Baldwin went even further. He moved to prevent Guy and Sibylla from succeeding to the throne. Should Baldwin V die before reaching adulthood, the king declared that the Pope, the King of England, and the King of France would choose as Jerusalem's new ruler either Sibylla or her and Baldwin's younger sister Isabella. Until this committee of potentates made its choice, Raymond of Tripoli would govern the kingdom as regent. Even as this political crisis was unfolding within the kingdom of Jerusalem, Saladin returned to the attack in November 1183. His target was Kerak, the stronghold of Reynal de Châtillon in Outre-Jourdain. Kerak was a state-of-the-art castle, and it occupied an extremely strong natural site, the top of a ridge with sheer slopes on three sides. But Saladin was determined to take it in order to avenge himself on Reynald for his Red Sea raid. He led a powerful army, furnished with a full siege train and strong contingents of miners. Moreover, the defense of Kerak was made more difficult because the castle was hosting a wedding. Princess Isabella was marrying Humphrey of Toron, one of the great lords of Jerusalem. Saladin gallantly ordered his catapults not to bombard the tower in which the newlyweds were staying. Baldwin IV was now so ravaged by leprosy that he could no longer mount a horse. He had to be carried on a litter. Nevertheless, he raised his field army and marched on Kerak. Afraid to be caught between the untaken fortress and the Frankish host, Saladin retreated. Saladin made Kerak the target of his invasion of the Kingdom of Jerusalem in August 1184. He battered the castle's walls with a powerful battery of nine catapults and deluged the defenders with arrow storms from huge numbers of nomad archers. As the siege reached its climax, Kerak teetered on the brink of falling. As a Muslim observer noted, no Frank can put his head out without receiving an arrow in the eye. Nothing remains but to fill in the ditch. Yet, as always, King Baldwin had been alert. He led the field army of Jerusalem across the Jordan just south of the Dead Sea, then came down on Saladin's host. Once again, unwilling to be caught between the hammer of the Frankish host and the anvil of Karak Castle, the Muslim warlord retreated. The rescue of Kerak was Baldwin's last great deed. By April 1185, he was so ravaged by leprosy that he was forced to give up active rule and appoint Raymond of Tripoli as his regent. Soon after, he died, aged just 23. To me, Baldwin the Leper King remains an immensely sympathetic figure. He rose above unimaginable personal agony to bravely and tenaciously defend his kingdom and his people. Time and time again, he led his armies against Saladin and turned him back. At the same time, Baldwin was a tragic figure, for by meddling in his succession, he would help unleash the chaos and political instability that would lead directly to the catastrophe of Hattin. Incredibly, Saladin made no attempt to immediately exploit the death of his old adversary. Instead, in April 1185, he and Raymond of Tripoli agreed to a truce for four years. 
the annual invasions of the Kingdom of Jerusalem had not lived up to the warlord's expectations. Though the Muslim armies had inflicted losses on the Franks and had devastated large swaths of their countryside, they had failed to conquer any part of Jerusalem's frontiers. Saladin decided to shift his sights to easier targets. His old Muslim rivals, the Zengids of the Jazeera and Mosul, appeared vulnerable. Saladin led his armies eastward. In the meantime, the political crisis in the Kingdom of Jerusalem exploded. In August 1186, the nine-year-old Baldwin V died. His death should have triggered the procedure established by Baldwin IV for the succession. Raymond of Tripoli, who had been the child king's regent, appeared in a strong position to control events. He clearly desired to take the throne for himself. Yet, he was outmaneuvered by Sibylla and Guy de Lusignan. The couple enjoyed the support of Patriarch Caraculus, Reynal de Chatillon, and Gerard de Ridfort, Grand Master of the Templars. In the events leading up to Hattin, Gerard would be a villain worthy of a Shakespeare tragedy or maybe even a James Bond movie. He had come to Outremer as a mercenary knight and become a follower of Raymond of Tripoli. Gerard sought to marry the heiress to the lordship of Botron. Instead, Raymond was persuaded to give the heiress's hand in marriage to a Pisan merchant who had offered him her weight in gold. Gravely insulted and furious at Raymond, Gerard broke with him and joined the Templars. He rapidly rose through the ranks of the order and became its master in 1184. With the help of these three powerful figures, Sibylla and Guy de Lusignan took control of Jerusalem and shut its gates to Raymond of Tripoli. Sibylla's supporters lobbied her to divorce the wildly unpopular Guy, and she initially appeared to agree. Patriarch Caraculus then crowned Sibylla queen. Immediately, Sibylla reaffirmed her marriage to Guy and proclaimed him king. There was now the very real danger of civil war. Raymond of Tripoli demanded the lords of Jerusalem support him. However, the lords refused to take up arms against a duly consecrated queen and king. Raymond then retreated to Tiberias, the capital of his lordship of Galilee. There, he called for help from Saladin. The Muslim warlords sent him troops and promised whatever assistance he needed. In return, Raymond allowed Muslim raiders to cross his lands. For Saladin could now devote his full attention to the jihad against the Franks. In 1185, his armies had swept through the Jazeera. By December, Mosul, the last stronghold of the Zengids, was besieged. Three months later, its lord agreed to become Saladin's vassal. The power of the Zengid dynasty was now broken. Saladin could add the numerous and superb warriors of the Jazeera and Mosul to his armies. Yet these latest successes against Muslim enemies opened up the warlord to loud and widespread criticism that he was once again not living up to his claim to be the champion of the counter-crusade. Saladin was therefore seeking any excuse to renew the war against Jerusalem. Reynal de Chatillon handed him one. Even as turmoil engulfed Jerusalem, Reynald remained almost pathologically aggressive. Early in 1187, he learned that a great caravan traveling from Syria to Egypt was passing near his stronghold of Karak. Reynald raided it, seizing goods and taking prisoners. King Guy de Lusignan was appalled, knowing that this attack endangered the truce with Saladin. He ordered Reynald to release the prisoners, restore the goods, and pay Saladin compensation. 
Reynald's reply was pure defiance. He would not do so, for he was lord of his land, just as Guy was lord of his, and he had no truces with the Saracens. Because he could not afford to alienate one of his closest and most powerful supporters, Guy had to swallow Reynald's answer. Saladin was furious at Reynald, vowing, in the words of his biographer, Baha al-Din, that when God gave him into his hands, he would slay him personally. But the Kurdish warlord had his reason to end the truce and declare war against the kingdom of Jerusalem. He mobilized troops from across his empire, which now extended from Tunisia to Egypt to Syria and northern Iraq. In April 1187, no less than four Muslim armies attacked the Crusader states. One army, under Saladin's nephew Taki al-Din, threatened the Principality of Antioch to prevent it from sending reinforcements to Jerusalem. Saladin's Egyptian army marched through the Sinai and into Outre-Jordan. Near Karak, it was joined by the warlord himself, leading his forces from Damascus. The combined armies then thoroughly ravaged Reynald's lands. The fourth army was led by Saladin's son, Al-Afdal, and it had the mission of raiding deep into the kingdom of Jerusalem. Al-Afdal sent a request to Raymond of Tripoli, asking him to allow the raiders passage through his lands. Raymond reluctantly agreed. 7,000 Turkic cavalry rode across Galilee under the command of one of Saladin's best generals, the emir of Haran and Edessa, who was nicknamed Gokbori, in Turkish, the Blue Wolf. The knights of the military orders were on the alert. 130 of them gathered at the springs of Cresson to shadow Gokbori's force. Despite their small numbers, the knight monks were commanded by Gerard de Ridfort, master of the Templars, and his hospitaller counterpart, Roger de Moulin. When Gerard spotted the first Turkic horseman approaching, he urged an immediate charge. The master of the hospital, as well as the senior Templar commanders, countered that this would be madness. Gerard became infuriated. Rounding on James de Mailly, Marshal of the Templars, Gerard accused him of cowardice, saying, You love your blonde head too well to want to lose it. James could only spit out that he would remain on the field like a man. By such insults, Gerard browbeat his comrades into a headlong rush at the Turks. Amazingly, the Templars and Hospitallers did well at first. All of the Muslim sources record that the battle was closely fought with one even writing that it was a battle that turned black hair white. The knights pierced deep into the Turkic ranks, cutting down many and putting others to flight. But weight of numbers quickly told. The Turks surrounded the knights and overwhelmed them. James de Mailly fought with furious valor until he was shot down. The master of the hospital died, as did almost all of the other knights. Gokbori had the knight's heads stuck to the end of lances, and he displayed them triumphantly as he passed Tiberias. From the walls of the town, Raymond of Tripoli could only helplessly watch this ghastly parade. In spite of the small number of knights engaged, the springs of Cressant was a disaster for the Franks. The Templars and the Hospitallers were the elite shock troops of the field army of Jerusalem. They had now lost one-sixth of their strength even before the opening of the main campaign. In another sign that the finger of luck or providence, God or Allah, was at work, Gerard de Ridfort was just one of three survivors of the battle. Why did he commit such an awful blunder? It is just possible he did not appreciate the overwhelming size of Gokbori's raiding force. 
But an even more important reason was his all-consuming hatred of Raymond of Tripoli. Gerard had thought he had spotted a priceless opportunity to humiliate his archenemy by defeating the raiders Raymond had allowed to pass through his lands. In any case, Gerard de Ridfort was not done inflicting serious harm to the Christian cause. By late June, Saladin had gathered all of his forces on the Golan Heights. It was the largest army he had ever commanded, 40,000 strong. At least 12,000 belonged to his Askar. In the decades since Montgisard, Saladin had lavished his regular cavalrymen with better mounts, improved weapons, and heavier armor. Turkic nomad mercenaries were present in huge numbers, and there was also a considerable body of infantry, including many Ghazis, or religious volunteers. Saladin's personal secretary, Imad al-Din al-Isfahani, wrote rhapsodically about the size and splendor of his master's host. The earth adorned itself in new clothes. Heaven opened so that the angels could descend from its gates. The ship-like tents rode at anchor in this expanse, and the battalions flooded in, wave upon wave. Swords and iron-tipped lances rose like stars. Many colored banners marked out the contingents from Egypt, Damascus, Aleppo, the Jazeera, Erbil, Mardin, and Mosul. But above them all flowed the bright yellow standards of Saladin and his Ayyubid clan. King Guy de Lusignan answered by ordering the field army of Jerusalem to muster at the springs of Safouria. After the debacle of Cresson, Raymond of Tripoli reconciled with Guy and Sibylla. He brought to Safouria the powerful feudal contingents of Tripoli and Galilee. In addition, at this moment of maximum danger, Gerard de Ridfort broke open the great money chests Henry II of England had confided to the care of the Order of the Temple. The English king had intended the money to fund his own pilgrimage to the east. The Templar master now used it to hire mercenaries. The army was the largest ever raised by the Franks of Outremer. 1,200 knights, 4,000 turcopoles, 15,000 infantry. The power of Jerusalem must have been every bit as splendid and brave a sight as Saladin's host. Knights in bright mail, covered by surcoats in every color, save for the knight monks of the military orders, who stood out by the very plainness of their habits. White with red crosses for the Templars, black with white crosses for the Hospitallers. Long-haired turcopoles and turbans, and silks over lamellar or leather armor, their compact, powerful bows and beautifully decorated cases, and countless infantrymen in simple helmets, chainmail shirts, or jack of plates, long spears or heavy crossbows on their shoulders. Finally, the army was bolstered by the true cross. It was traditionally carried into battle by the Patriarch of Jerusalem. However, Heraclius had decided to remain safely behind in the warm embrace of his mistress, Pachia de Rivery, who is known as Madame la Patriarchesse. The holy relic was placed in the care of the Bishop of Acre. Saladin entered the kingdom of Jerusalem on the last day of June 1187. He and his army crossed the Jordan River at Al-Sanabra, just south of the Sea of Galilee, and then ascended the steep western slope of the Jordan Valley. The Muslim host established its main camp at Kafr Sabt in the heart of Galilee. Saladin first carried out a thorough reconnaissance of the surrounding area, during which he identified the plain around the Horns of Atin as a suitable site for a battle. 
He then dispatched detachments of Turkic light horse in all directions to raid, pillage, and burn the Galilean countryside. Finally, he laid siege to Raymond of Tripoli's capital of Tiberias. In Raymond's absence, its defense was conducted by his wife, the Countess Ishiva. Saladin's moves were cunningly calculated to provoke the Franks into action. Instead, the army of Jerusalem was paralyzed for three days by increasingly bitter arguments among King Guy and his nobles about what to do. These disputes within the Frankish leadership were in fact the continuation of the earlier conflicts over power in Jerusalem. Many of the Frankish lords, led by Reynal de Châtillon and Gerard de Ridfort, urged Guy de Lusignan to attack Saladin at once. They correctly pointed out that King Baldwin IV had time and again repulsed the Muslim armies by acting quickly and aggressively. But Raymond of Tripoli and his supporters argued that the field army should remain at Safuria. This argument too had merits. At Safuria, the army was in a strong defensive position and well-placed to block Saladin from advancing deeper into the kingdom. Even if Tiberius fell, Saladin would not be able to keep his huge host in the field for very long. Soon, it would disband, as his troops grew frustrated by a lack of plunder and went home. This argument was given greater weight by the fact that Raymond was willing to put his wife and family at risk of capture or even death. Despite Reynald and Gerard accusing him of bad faith, Raymond's arguments carried the day. The army of Jerusalem remained at Safuria. On July 2nd, Saladin stormed into Tiberias, forcing Countess Ashiva and the defenders to take refuge in the town's citadel. When word of these events reached Safuria, it provoked another, even more acrimonious debate about what to do. Once again, Reynald de Châtillon, Gerard de Ridfort, and many of the lords of Jerusalem argued that the army had to march out at once to the relief of Tiberias. Their eagerness to confront a massive enemy force was not irrational. The army of Jerusalem had won against long odds before, and this time it was stronger than ever. But Raymond of Tripoli continued to argue forcefully in favor of the army remaining at Safuria. Again, King Guy sided with him. After the council of war disbanded, Gerard de Ridfort remained behind in the king's tent. In a fiery speech, the Templar Grand Master cunningly tied Count Raymond's ambition and his past treacheries to his advice to stand fast at Safuria. He then urged Guy to challenge Saladin to battle. Sire, do not trust the advice of Count Raymond, for he is a traitor, and you well know that he has no love for you and wants you to be put to shame and lose the kingdom. I advise you to move off immediately together with the rest of us and let us go and defeat Saladin. This is the first crisis that you have encountered since you became king. If you do not leave this camp, Saladin will come to attack you, and if you withdraw at his attack, the shame and reproach will be all the greater for you. Guy must now have remembered how his decision in 1183 to merely shadow Saladin rather than engage him in battle had led to his downfall, and how Raymond of Tripoli had profited from it. He could, he realized, be making the same mistake again. Early the next day, July 3, 1187, Guy de Lusignan announced that the army would march immediately for Tiberias and the relief of Countess Ishiva. When a shocked Raymond of Tripoli and his supporters questioned the decision and demanded to know who had influenced the king, Guy declared imperiously, You have no right to ask me by whose counsel I am doing this. 
I want you to get on your horses and leave here and head towards Tiberias. There was no hint of dissension by the time the Franks issued out of the camp at Sapphoria. The army of Jerusalem was in three divisions, formed one behind the other in column. Traditionally, the lord on whose lands the host was fighting took the lead, so the vanguard consisted of Raymond of Tripoli and his Galilean contingent, tough fighters with considerable experience of frontier fighting. Next came the center division, made up of troops from the fiefs of Jerusalem under King Guy de Lusignan. Accompanying the king was the true cross. The rear guard consisted of the Templars and the Hospitallers. As the most disciplined troops in the army, the knight monks were entrusted with the most exposed and difficult position. Command of the rear guard was entrusted to Balian of Ibelin, one of the great lords of the kingdom. The whole column, 20,000 men and thousands of animals, stretched for a kilometer or more. It was a fighting march, so each division was a rectangle, with the infantry forming the outer sides the cavalry, and the all-important horses sheltering in the middle. From Sapphoria, Tiberias was 26 kilometers to the east. The army of Jerusalem's route followed a Roman road, running along a valley called Batov by the Franks. The valley's northern side was formed by the steep slopes of Mount Turan. Halfway to Tiberias was the village of Turan, which, in the summer of 1187, had ample springs. Beyond Turan, the road forked. One route led south to Saladin's encampment at Kafr Sabt. The other route climbed a plateau, passed beneath the hills called the Horns of Hattin, then descended to the Sea of Galilee and Tiberias. Muslim cavalry were screening Safuria, so the march of the army of Jerusalem was detected immediately. Word was sent to Saladin, who was overseeing operations at Tiberias. He rushed to the scene, at the same time calling up his forces. Like the Franks, he deployed his army into three divisions. The right wing was commanded by his able and ambitious nephew Taki al-Din. The left wing by the fearsome Gokbori, victor of the springs of Cresson. These two wings had the mission of harassing the Frankish column, so were given the bulk of the Turkic light horse. Saladin personally commanded the third division, the center, which was comprised of most of the Askar cavalry and all of the infantry. It took time for Saladin to gather and arrange his units. The army of Jerusalem initially only faced scattered harassment from bands of Turkic horse archers. These were easily brushed aside. At this stage, the Franks' main challenges stemmed from the conditions of their march. The thousands of men and animals threw up enormous clouds of dust, which got into eyes, throats, and every nook and chink of armor. Everyone soon bore a thick coating of brown, red, and yellow dirt. By mid-morning, summertime temperatures in Galilee were usually in the mid-30s centigrade. The Frankish soldiers began to find their armor, particularly their helmets, increasingly uncomfortable. Yet they dared not take their helmets off because of the increasingly frequent showers of Turkic arrows. Then there was thirst. A horse requires 27 liters a day of water an adult male, two and a half liters a day. The army could not carry anything close to the enormous quantities of water required. A Saladin secretary, Imad al-Din, observes, the dog star burned with unrelenting heat. The troops drank the contents of their flasks, but this could not slake their thirst. Nevertheless, the army of Jerusalem completed the first stage of its march. 
14 kilometers to the village of Turan, in good order and with its fighting spirits high. The village's springs afforded the Franks a precious opportunity to slake their thirst, refill their flasks, and water their horses. Jerusalem's army hesitated. From a nearby hill, Saladin looked down at the enemy and grew very worried. If Guy de Lusignan chose to remain at Turan, his army would be established in a well-watered, highly defensible place, perfectly positioned to threaten either Tiberias or the Muslim encampment at Kafr Sab. Saladin's army would be pinned down, a situation that it would not be able to maintain for very long. So, it was undoubtedly with enormous relief that Saladin watched the army of Jerusalem move off. Reaching the crossroads just beyond Turan, the Franks took the northern route that climbed up the plateau toward the horns of Hattin. The Kurdish warlord believed that Guy's blunder in marching beyond Turan was so foolish and so fatal that it could only have been the result of diabolic intervention. The devil seduced Guy into doing the opposite of what he had in mind. Saladin explained in a letter to the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad, and made to seem good to him what was not his real wish and intention, so he left the water and set out towards Tiberias. Saladin was quick to pounce on Guy's mistake. He sent troops to move behind the Frankish column and occupy Turan and foul its springs, so that the army of Jerusalem could not return there. Then he ordered Taki al-Din and Gokbori to attack. Wave after wave of Turkic cavalry surged at the Frankish column, suddenly appearing out of the all-engulfing dust, shooting storms of arrows before dashing away again. It was customary among the Turks to accompany their attacks with a terrifying cacophony of noise from war cries, trumpets, and especially enormous tubal drums and nakarat kettle drums. Saladin was well prepared for a prolonged phase of wearing down the enemy. He had brought with his army 400 wagon and 70 camel loads of arrows, ensuring that his warriors would have plenty of missiles to shoot. This onslaught was exactly what the Frankish fighting march was designed to withstand. The soldiers of Jerusalem at first resisted the Turks calmly and coolly. At each attack, the heavy infantry halted to present a wall of overlapping shields and bristling gleaming spearheads. From behind the cover they provided, crossbowmen shot in relays, slamming volleys of bolts into the Turks well before they could return fire with their own bows. Wherever the horse archers came too close, the knights would charge out from behind the shield wall, cutting down any Turk too slow to flee. Whenever a Frank was wounded or killed, he was dragged into the center of the fighting box, so that the foe could not see the losses they were inflicting, and so take heart. Yet soon enough, Saladin's enormous numbers began to tell. Whenever an attack was driven off, another simply took its place. The Turkic horsemen especially concentrated their efforts on the rear guard. Even worse, any relief that the Franks had enjoyed from their brief halt at the springs of Turan soon dissipated, and they were again suffering badly from thirst. The best hope that the army of Jerusalem had to end its torment was to launch its knights in a powerful battle-winning charge against Saladin's main body. Yet the Muslim warlord cunningly kept his center division some distance to the south of the Franks, close enough to be menacing, just far enough away to be out of reach. As dusk approached, the Frankish army had advanced just four or five kilometers beyond the Turan crossroads to reach the vicinity of a small village called Mascana. By then, the army was in crisis. One Christian chronicler noted that, 
the Turks kept engaging them and so impeded their progress. The heat was very great, and that was a source of great affliction, and in that valley there was nowhere they could find water. In particular, the rear guard was floundering. Beset by unrelenting Turkic assaults, it was constantly falling behind the two other divisions. Raymond of Tripoli now sent an urgent message to King Guy. We must hurry and pass through this area so that we and our men may be safe near the water. Otherwise, we will be in danger of making camp at a waterless spot. Raymond's advice was hard and cold because it entailed sacrificing the elite troops of the rear guard in order to rescue the rest of the army. At first, King Guy appeared to agree, but then he made a second blunder. He halted the army so that the rear guard could catch up, then ordered that camp be made for the night. According to sources particularly favorable to Raymond of Tripoli, he is supposed to have responded to these orders by lamenting, Alas, Lord God, the battle is over. We have been betrayed unto death. The kingdom is finished. Whatever Raymond's reaction, the decision to halt condemned the Frankish army to a night of misery. Once again, Saladin was quick to take advantage of his adversary's mistake. He sent his infantry up to the high ground north of the road. His own Askar cavalry remained to the south. Gokbori's left wing prevented any retreat to Tehran, while Taki al-Din's right wing was astride the road in front of the Franks. The army of Jerusalem was now surrounded. As one Christian chronicler described the situation, when the Saracens saw that the Christians were making camp, they were delighted. They camped around the Christian host so close that they could talk to one another, and if a cat had fled from the Christian host, it could not have escaped without the Saracens taking it. That night, the Christians were in great discomfort. Great harm befell the host, since there was not a man or a horse that had anything to drink that night. During the night, Muslim troops stealthily approached to shoot showers of arrows into the camp. They also set the dry brush and grass around the camp on fire, so that the smoke and the heat worsened the effects of thirst. To damage the enemy's morale even further, Saladin ordered jars of water to be brought up by camels, and then poured out before the Franks' eyes. As dawn approached, the commanders of the army of Jerusalem met for a final council of war. Both Renal de Chatillon and Gerard de Ridfort urged King Guy to deploy for battle. A knight named John, who had served with the Turks as a mercenary, explained that the best tactic was to marshal all of the cavalry and then launch a mass charge directly at where the yellow Ayyubid banners were thickest, indicating the spot where Saladin and his leading emirs were standing. To the great credit of the Frankish troops, they still had enough discipline and determination to reform the fighting march and move off. The army aimed for the horns of Hattin. These twin hills, the peaks of an extinct volcano, rose parallel to the road to a height of 326 meters. Beyond the horns was the village of Hattin, which possessed ample springs. According to one Christian account of the battle, the Franks formed their battle lines and hurried to pass through this region in the hope that when they had regained a watering place and had refreshed themselves, they could attack and fight the foe more vigorously. Saladin did not intend to give them that opportunity. Although he still kept his main body at a safe distance from the Franks, his Turkic horsemen and infantry intensified their wearing down attacks. As the morning passed, the Franks' thirst became worse, their casualties increased, their disorder grew. 
the army of Jerusalem struggled on until it reached the Western Horn. There, the Templars and Hospitallers of the rear guard decided on their own initiative to mount a charge. Launched with the discipline and order that were the trademarks of the military orders, the charge initially gained some success. But crucially, the charge of the orders was not supported by the rest of the Frankish army. Saladin now committed his fresh Askar cavalry. They absorbed the night monks' momentum and sent them reeling back. After the failure of this effort, the rear guard was driven into Kingi's center. The two divisions became hopelessly intermingled. Meanwhile, Raymond of Tripoli's vanguard was steadily moving forward, outstripping the rest of the army. At some point, either acting on his own or under orders from Kingi, Raymond of Tripoli assembled his knights and launched a charge. His target was Taki al-Din's division, and his intention was to break through and hopefully clear the road ahead for the rest of the army. He and his knights plunged into Taki al-Din's Askar, striking down many of the enemy with their lances, but their charge rapidly lost way and the enemy engulfed them. Only Raymond and a handful of survivors managed to cut their way to safety. They fled from the battle and escaped Tyre. The discipline of the army of Jerusalem finally broke down. The surviving infantry of the vanguard and the co-mingled rearguard center division retreated up the steep slopes of the horns, abandoning the knights. One source stresses that the leaders of the army pleaded with the footmen to come down and continue the fight. The king, the bishop of Acre, and others sent word, begging them to return to defend the Lord's cross, the Lord's army, and themselves. They replied, We are not coming, because we are dying of thirst, and we will not fight. Again the command was given, and again they persisted in their refusal. Stuck in the basin between the two horns, the Frankish commanders made a last desperate effort. Stuck in the basin between the two horns, the Frankish commanders made a last desperate effort. They ordered the army's tents pitched to provide some protection against the Muslim arrow barrages. Behind their cover, the surviving knights formed up, the Turkpoles, sergeants, and squires lining up behind them to add numbers and weight. Then the Frankish cavalry charged for Saladin's banners. Saladin's son, Al-Afdal, 17 years old and fighting in his first pitched battle, has left a remarkable record of this climactic moment of the Battle of Hattin. I was alongside my father during this battle, the first I had witnessed. When the king of the Franks was on the hill, they made a formidable charge against the Muslims facing them, so that they drove them back to my father. I looked towards him, and he was overcome by grief and his complexion pale. He took hold of his beard and advanced, crying out, Give the lie to the devil. The Muslims rallied, returned to the fight, and climbed the hill. When I saw the Franks withdraw, I shouted for joy. We have beaten them. But the Franks rallied and charged again like the first time, and drove the Muslims back to my father. He acted as he had on the first occasion, and the Muslims turned upon the Franks and drove them back to the hill. I again shouted, We have beaten them. But my father said, Be quiet. We have not beaten them until that tent falls. As he was speaking to me, the tent of King Guy fell. The final acts of the battle then unfolded. After their charges had failed, and the last of their horses had been killed or incapacitated by wounds, the Frankish knights continued to fight on on foot. The Frankish infantry were driven down from the heights and pitched into the roiling melee at the foot of the horns. 
At last, exhausted and dehydrated, the survivors simply gave up and sat on the ground. The jubilant soldiers of Saladin roved about the battlefield. A few, overcome by zeal and bloodlust, continued killing now helpless enemies, but most were interested in making prisoners of the exhausted and despondent Franks. Captives who could be sold as slaves represented valuable booty. But this time, so many were taken that the prices at the nearby slave market of Damascus collapsed, with one contemporary Muslim report claiming the Christian captives were so numerous that one was sold for a pair of sandals. Saladin ordered no mercy for certain prisoners. All the Templars and Hospitallers were executed, many by the Muslim clerics and holy men who had accompanied the warlord's army. The same punishment was meted out to the Turkopoles, who were regarded as apostates to Islam. Many of the leading lords and commanders of Jerusalem had been taken alive. Amazingly, Gerard de Ridfort was the only Templar to survive, spared because of his high rank. But the most important captures were King Guy de Lusignan and Reynald de Châtillon. Saladin ordered the pair brought to his tent. Reynald was offered conversion to Islam as the only way to save his life. When he refused, Saladin personally executed him. Guy fell to his knees, cowering and fearing the same fate. But Saladin raised him up and reassured him by explaining, It has not been customary for princes to kill princes, but this man transgressed his limits, so he has suffered what he has suffered. Finally, in addition to these prisoners, the true cross had also fallen into Muslim hands. The largest field army ever raised by the Kingdom of Jerusalem was annihilated at Hattin. Out of the 1,200 knights who fought in the battle, only 200 seemed to have escaped the stricken field, among them Raymond of Tripoli and Balian of Ibeline. Of the infantry, virtually all were killed or captured. Saladin's victory at Hattin was as complete as Hannibal's at Cannae. Among both medieval and modern historians, Guy de Lusignan has borne much of the blame for the catastrophe that befell the Franks. Although he had raised a powerful army, he seemed to have had no idea how to use it. Instead, Guy allowed himself to be drawn into the political infighting that had long fractured his kingdom. As a result, he dithered while Saladin established himself in a strong position in Galilee. His need to present himself as a strong monarch led to the fatal decision to march out of Safuria to relieve Tiberias. Guy then made two further serious blunders. First, he failed to halt at the strong position of Turan. And second, when he did stop the army, it was at the waterless site of Mascana, where it was promptly surrounded by Saladin and harassed through the night. During the climax of the fighting on July 4th, Guy de Lusignan had shown himself to be personally courageous. However, his tactical handling of the army had been inept. Above all, he had thrown away the Franks' one great advantage, their charges, by first failing to support the military order's attack, then launching a series of uncoordinated and unsupported assaults of his own. Yet Saladin won the battle more than King Guy lost it. In his earlier campaigns against the Kingdom of Jerusalem, Saladin's generalship had rarely risen beyond the level of solid competence. At Hattin, he commanded his forces flawlessly. Most impressively, Saladin demonstrated that he had learned valuable lessons from past encounters with the Franks. He first raised and brought to bear a massive army. Operationally, 
it gave him tremendous flexibility. Saladin could simultaneously devastate enemy territory, beleaguer Tiberias, and threaten the field army of Jerusalem at Safuria. Tactically, his massive numbers of horsemen swamped the Frankish fighting march. Next, his decision to besiege Tiberias was a masterstroke. It placed unbearable pressure on King Guy either to march and risk battle on ground of Saladin's choosing or appear weak by losing the town without a fight. Then, once engaged in action, the Kurdish warlord used the combination of relentless hit-and-run attacks and the effects of heat and thirst to wear down the foe. While this process unfolded, he carefully maneuvered the main body of his host so that it was never exposed to a charge. Finally, when the Franks did manage to launch their charges, his rearmed, retrained, and reinforced Askar succeeded in absorbing and nullifying their blows. In sum, Saladin's performance was brilliant. From the perspective of hindsight, Hattin appears inevitable. By 1187, Saladin had disposed of his main Muslim rivals and could concentrate entirely on the jihad against the Crusader states. Moreover, the resources of his massive empire were overwhelming. Yet placing Hattin in the context of the events of the 1170s and 1180s allows us to come to a different interpretation. At Hattin, the field army of Jerusalem had shown itself to be just as formidable a fighting force as it had ever been. Its fighting march formation had been effective for most of the battle. It took Saladin's massive numerical superiority to finally swamp it. Furthermore, the Franks' discipline and cohesion had held together under the most intense pressure, only breaking down after Saladin had pushed the army to the very brink of defeat. The Frankish elite troops, the knights, had charged repeatedly and continued fighting right to the end. Similarly, the Kingdom of Jerusalem's strategy of dogged defense of its frontiers was not doomed to failure. Beginning in 1180, Saladin's annual invasions had pummeled the kingdom. Each time, the Franks had managed to repel him. More importantly, they had prevented the Kurdish warlord from making any major territorial gains. The Crusader states had faced similar situations before, such as the period from 1110 to 1120, when the Seljuk sultans had inspired and organized assaults by large armies almost every year. The Franks might have been hoping that if they could just hang on, Saladin's warlord empire would eventually collapse in dynastic infighting after his death. The pressure would then be relieved, the strategic balance righted, and the Franks perhaps even returned to the offensive. After all, this was what happened with the Seljuks and the Zengids. Hattin put an abrupt and permanent end to this frontier strategy. The Franks could not afford a defeat on such a scale because of their fundamental and insurmountable problem of manpower. To create the grand army that was annihilated at Hattin, Jerusalem's commanders had mobilized every man with even a modicum of military training. Moreover, they had stripped the walled cities and castles of their garrisons. The kingdom now stood defenseless before Saladin's victorious host. Saladin understood that the kingdom of Jerusalem lay at his mercy. But he also realized that in order to make Hattin a decisive battle that would bring the counter-crusade to a successful conclusion, he would need to take all of the Franks' fortresses and walled cities, particularly the ports on the Palestinian coast that were the economic engines of the kingdom as well as the gateways for new crusading armies coming from Europe. 
Although these strong places had been emptied of most of their fighting men, Saladin feared that their Christian inhabitants would resist with fanatical desperation, even for the warlord's powerful, victorious army. Methodically conquering all of the cities would be very costly and above all take time. And time for Saladin was limited because Hattin would invariably provoke a powerful reaction in Europe. Saladin's ingenious solution to this daunting problem was to offer generous terms of surrender, and in particular to extend every consideration to the surviving Frankish leaders, even when we take the considerable propaganda that surrounds him into account. Saladin still emerges as a man capable of astoundingly humanitarian impulses. In an age of bitter holy war, his policy of mercy was unheard of. It helped lay the foundations for Saladin's later reputation for kindness and courtesy. The Kurdish warlord immediately put his policy into practice. When the citadel of Tiberias capitulated, he allowed the Countess Ashiva and her household to depart freely. On July 9th, one of the greatest prizes in the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the port city of Acre, surrendered. Then, when Saladin and his army marched deeper into the kingdom in the following weeks and months, city after city and castle after castle capitulated to them. By September, Saladin felt ready to tackle Jerusalem. He summoned its citizens and offered them astonishingly generous terms of surrender. But the Jerusalemites rejected them. According to one Christian source, they replied that if it pleased God, they would never surrender the city where God had shed his blood for them to Saracens under such terms. When Saladin saw and heard their answer, he swore he could never accept Jerusalem by treaty, but instead would take it by force. On September 20th, 1187, Saladin appeared before Jerusalem's walls and opened a siege. The people resisted fiercely under the leadership of Balian of Ibelin, one of the few great lords who had escaped the disaster of Hattin. It was not until September 29th that Muslim sappers managed to open a breach in the walls. Saladin was prepared to massacre the citizens. However, Balian then threatened to destroy everything within the walls, including the Muslim shrines on the Temple Mount. In the end, Saladin agreed to allow any Jerusalemites who could pay a ransom to go free. Eventually, Balian of Ibelin and Patriarch Heraculus led three long columns of Frankish refugees to the coast of Palestine. On October 2nd, Saladin entered Jerusalem. Some of his soldiers scaled the Dome of the Rock and toppled the great cross that the Crusaders had placed on its top. A week later, the Adan, the Islamic call to prayer, sang out from the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But there were other, even more important sites of Frankish resistance in the Kingdom of Jerusalem. In late August, the powerfully fortified port of Ascalon had resisted so obstinately that Saladin had been compelled to resort to a ruse. He brought out King Guy de Lusignan and offered to free him if he could persuade the citizens of Ascalon to capitulate. But Guy's exhortations were met with derision, and Saladin was forced to take Ascalon by storm. In the interior of the kingdom, the great castles of Montréal and Kerak in Outre-Jordan, as well as Hospitaller-held Belvoir and Templar-held Safed in Galilee, obstinately held out even in the absence of any field army to relieve them. But the most consequential holdout was the port of Tyre. Many of the survivors of Hattin had taken refuge there. Moreover, they came under the inspiring and capable leadership of a great Italian nobleman, Conrad of Montferrat, who had arrived in the kingdom of Jerusalem after Hattin. 
Conrad was the brother of the late William Longsword, first husband of Sibylla and father of the dead child king Baldwin V. He therefore could make a claim on the throne of Jerusalem, one which he strengthened by marrying the princess Isabella, Sibylla's sister and rival heiress. Despite all of Saladin's efforts, Tyre could not be taken. Meanwhile, in Europe, the reaction that Saladin feared would be provoked by Hattin was quickly gaining force and speed. In August 1187, Archbishop Josias of Tyre had gone to Europe to bring word of Hattin and to seek military aid for the Franks. The news of Hattin rocked Europe. When told of the disaster, Pope Urban III died of shock. His successors, Gregory VIII and Clement III, immediately called for a new crusade to retake Jerusalem. This crusade was preached everywhere with great fervor. In the sermons, Saladin was depicted as the archenemy of Christianity, the profane, impious, and cruel Antichrist, the dog of Babylon, the son of perdition. With the crusading fire now reignited and burning more fiercely than ever before, the leading monarchs of Christendom could not ignore the call to take up the cross. The Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa was the first to set off on what came to be called the Third Crusade. In May 1189, he departed for the Middle East at the head of a powerful army of 15,000 German soldiers. The kings of England and France also took up the cross. However, their mutual hostilities significantly delayed them. It was not until July 4, 1190, precisely three years after Hattin, that King Richard I, the Lionheart of England, and King Philip II, Augustus of France, left Vézelay together for the east. Their armies would form the heart of the Third Crusade. In addition to these major forces, contingents from all over Europe were on the move. In the summer of 1188, Saladin knew that his window of opportunity to secure the Kingdom of Jerusalem before the arrival of the Crusade was rapidly closing. In fact, the spring sailing season, the Passagium Vernale, had already brought the first wave of European crusaders to the coast of Palestine. Saladin now decided to set free Guy de Lusignan. This move was meant to provoke infighting among the Franks, especially the diehards at Tyre. Although disgraced and gravely weakened by the debacle of Hattin, Guy was still the consecrated king of Jerusalem. Therefore, he still enjoyed residual loyalty among many Franks. Saladin's move, however, immediately backfired, for Guy de Lusignan now demonstrated the determination, political acumen, and military skills that were so conspicuously absent at Hattin. A condition of his release was that he go into exile overseas. Guy duly boarded a vessel, sailed to the island of Ruad, located a kilometer off the Syrian coast, and then returned. He told Saladin's envoys that he had now been overseas and was thus released from his vows. Guy collected a small army in Tripoli and Antioch, then proceeded south to Tyre. Conrad of Montferrat refused to recognize him as king and barred him from entering the city. Then Guy heeded his brother Amory's advice that when the kings of the West arrived in the Holy Land, it would be much better that they should find you having besieged a city rather than you having been idle. He marched south and besieged Acre. The great struggle for Acre would last for three years and would be one of the greatest epics of the Crusades. As one Christian wrote, if the Ten-Year War made Troy famous, then Acre will certainly win fame, for the whole globe assembled to fight for her. John Hosler, 
the author of a recent superb study of the siege, notes that fighting men from northern and southern Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa all fought at Acre. Within the city's walls was a powerful garrison of Saladin's soldiers, led by two of his most trusted generals, the eunuch Karakush and Al-Mashtub, whose name meant the Scarred. Encircling Acre was the army of Guy de Lusignan, which would be constantly replenished and reinforced by crusader contingents arriving from Europe. The Franks and crusaders were in turn surrounded by Saladin's field army, which contained contingents from across his great empire. The fighting would mix together one of the greatest sieges of the Middle Ages with constant skirmishing and some of the largest pitched battles of the Crusades. While the great struggle for Acre raged, Saladin also had to keep a wary eye on the advance of the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, who was taking the land route across Anatolia to the Holy Land. The powerful German army posed a fearsome threat, and the Kurdish warlord was compelled to keep considerable forces in northern Syria to guard against its arrival. Then, on June 10, 1190, occurred one of those lucky events that seemed to punctuate Saladin's career. While swimming in the Salaf River, on the border of Syria, Emperor Frederick Barbarossa died. A veteran of the Second Crusade, he was an experienced commander as well as a strong monarch. Deprived of his powerful guidance, the German army largely dissolved. Only a small remnant arrived in the Holy Land. The campaign of the Third Crusade properly began with the arrival of the French and English kings with their armies at Acre in the summer of 1191. These reinforcements of manpower and high-level commanders gave the Christians the decisive edge in the siege. On July 11, 1191, French sappers managed to bring down a long section of the city's walls. The next day, the garrison negotiated surrender terms with the besiegers. The Muslims would release 1,600 Christian captives in their hands, return the true cross, and pay a ransom of 200,000 dinars. Saladin, however, dickered over the fulfillment of these terms, particularly the payment of the ransom. King Richard of England suspected the warlord of delaying so that he could regather his armies. On August 20, 1191, Richard carried out an act of startling exemplary brutality. He massacred the entire Muslim garrison of 2,600 men. A shocked Saladin could only respond in kind by executing all of his Christian captives. By massacring the Acre garrison, Richard the Lionheart demonstrated that he was a dangerous, iron-willed enemy. He also soon proved to be perhaps the finest Christian commander of the entire Crusades. When Philip Augustus of France returned home in August 1191, Richard took charge of the Crusade. On August 25th, he and his army of 10,000 men set off from Acre along the coast of Palestine to attack Jaffa, the port closest to Jerusalem. Richard arrayed his army in the same fighting march formation that King Guy had adopted at Hattin. But unlike at Hattin, Richard had a fleet hovering offshore to provide food and water. Even more importantly, the King of England had the respect of his entire army. The distance from Acre to Jaffa was 128 kilometers. For almost two weeks, Saladin launched relentless attacks on Richard's marching army hoping to wear it down and weaken it as he had the field army of Jerusalem at Hattin. But these attacks seemed to have little effect. Richard's army maintained its formation, kept its discipline, and continued advancing. Finally, 
on September 7, 1191, Saladin launched a direct assault against Richard's Whiting March formation. Richard wanted to time the charge of his knights carefully so that they could destroy his opponents in a single stroke. But his rear guard, manned by the Templars and Hospitallers, came under such heavy Muslim pressure that they charged on their own without waiting for orders. Richard was forced to launch the rest of his knights. Their devastating impact was recorded by Baha al-Din, a Muslim chronicler who was with Saladin's army. The Crusaders' situation worsened still more, and the Muslims thought they had them in their power. Eventually, the first detachments of their infantry reached the plantations of Arsuf. Then their cavalry massed together and agreed on a charge, as they feared for their people and thought only a charge would save them. I saw them grouped together in the middle of the foot soldiers. They took their lances and gave a shout as one man. The infantry opened gaps for them, and they charged in unison. One group charged our right wing, another our left, and the third our center. It happened that I was in the center, which took to wholesale flight. My intention was to join the left wing, since it was nearer to me. I reached it after it had been broken utterly, so I thought to join the right wing, but then I saw that it had fled more calamitously than all the rest. Saladin's army was completely routed. After Arsuf, the Crusaders then retook the entire coast of Palestine, from Tyre to Ascalon. Above all, Arsuf demonstrated that the fighting techniques of the Frankish armies, based on the fighting march and the charge of the knights, could still win battles, even against the most powerful and effective Muslim armies. As John France points out, the contrast with Hattin was remarkable. There, Guy's army had begun to fall apart in a mere four kilometers of march after Turan, but Richard's men endured 14 days of attacks over 100 kilometers. Richard had carefully taken into account problems of supply, which Guy had not. The contrast in outcomes points to the difference between the commanders and the respect in which they were held. Jerusalem, however, proved beyond even Richard the Lionheart's grasp. The Crusaders were too few and Saladin's army too large and strong for the Third Crusade to capture, and more importantly, hold Jerusalem. After two failed attempts to reach the city from Jaffa in the fall and winter of 1191, Richard entered into negotiations with Saladin. The opening letters of the two leaders demonstrates both sides' deep embrace of their respective doctrines of holy war. Richard wrote, The Muslims and Franks are done for. The land is ruined, ruined utterly at the hands of both sides. Property and lives on both sides are destroyed. Now Jerusalem is the center of our worship, which we shall never renounce, even if there were only one of us left. As for these lands, let them be restored to us what is this side of the Jordan. The holy cross, that is a piece of wood that has no value for you, but is important for us, let the sultan bestow it upon us. Then we can make peace and rest from this constant hardship. Saladin replied, Jerusalem is as much ours as it is yours. Indeed, for us, it is greater than it is for you, for it is where our prophet came on his night journey and the gathering place of the angels. Let not the king imagine that we shall give it up, for we are unable to breathe a word of that amongst the Muslims. As for the land, it is ours originally. Your conquest of it was an unexpected accident due to the weakness of the Muslims there at that time. While the war continues, God has not enabled you to build up one stone there. 
the destruction of the Holy Cross would in our eyes be a great offering to God. But the only reason we are not permitted to go that far is that some more useful benefit might accrue to Islam. In fact, both Richard and Saladin proved to be much more flexible than these letters suggested. The negotiations took a year and was punctuated by further fighting, during which Richard won another notable victory at the Battle of Jaffa on August 5, 1192. Finally, on September 2, 1192, Richard and Saladin concluded the Treaty of Jaffa. The Kingdom of Jerusalem was resurrected as a coastal strip running from Beirut to Jaffa. Jerusalem itself remained under Muslim control, but Saladin had to allow Christian pilgrims safe passage to and from it. In addition, Richard had wrested Cyprus from its rebel Byzantine governor. The King of England granted the island to Guy de Lusignan in exchange for his agreement to recognize Conrad of Montferrat as King of Jerusalem. The Lusignan-ruled Kingdom of Cyprus was another crusader state. The Battle of Hattin, then, was not a decisive victory. By failing to conquer all of the Palestinian ports, Saladin had left the door open for the Third Crusade, led by the most formidable of all crusader commanders. Although Richard the Lionheart failed to retake Jerusalem itself, he had saved the Franks and resurrected the Crusader kingdom. Hattin inaugurated a century of renewed holy war. The results of the Third Crusade had disappointed many in Europe. During the 13th century, a whole series of further crusades would attempt to recover Jerusalem for Christians. The new crusades were better organized and better financed than ever before thanks to the reforming efforts of Pope Innocent III. He allowed people who could not personally take part in the expeditions to the East to pay for them in exchange for a spiritual reward. Innocent also instituted a regular tax on the clergy. Systematic preaching and new religious ceremonies kept Jerusalem at the forefront of European Christians' minds. The new Crusades used the Kingdom of Jerusalem and the Kingdom of Cyprus as bases. They also adopted a new strategy, or rather resurrected an old one. During the Third Crusade, Richard the Lionheart had considered mounting an attack on Egypt, which he recognized as the foundation of Saladin's power. After Saladin's death in 1193, his massive empire fell apart and became divided among his heirs of the Ayyubid clan. The Ayyubid rulers of Egypt and Syria then fought each other for possession of the whole. These divisions convinced crusaders that they could recover Jerusalem by winning victories on the banks of the Nile. The Fourth Crusade set out to attack Egypt but was diverted by a series of chance events to besiege and take Constantinople in 1204. The Fifth Crusade seized the important Egyptian port of Damietta in 1219. The Egyptian sultan offered to exchange Jerusalem for Damietta, but was refused by the crusaders, who instead advanced on Cairo. The crusade was only finally defeated because the Ayyubids of Egypt and Syria managed to temporarily unite against it. The Egyptian strategy culminated with the Seventh Crusade, or the Crusade of Saint-Louis. A powerful as well as pious monarch, Louis IX of France invaded Egypt with a large army and a strong fleet in 1249. The French crusaders seized Damietta and threatened to capture Cairo before they were defeated by the elite slave soldiers of the Askar of Egypt, the Baria Mamluks. The defeat 
of Saint-Louis' crusade then initiated the final phase of the crusades and the downfall of the crusader states. Disgusted by the weakness and disunity of the Ayyubids, the Mamluks overthrew their masters and took power in Egypt. The Mamluks were Turks, and they continued to acquire new recruits from their original homelands in the Eurasian steppes. They formed a ruling caste that based its domination and ruthless exploitation of the native Egyptian population on mastery of the traditional skills of the steppe nomad warrior. No sooner had the Mamluks established their regime in Egypt that they faced a dire threat from the greatest steppe nomad warriors of all, the Mongols. In 1258, the hordes of Hulegu, grandson of Chinggis Khan, captured and destroyed Baghdad. The last Abbasid caliph was rolled up in a carpet and trampled to death by Mongol horses. Bent on the conquest of the Middle East, the Mongols then entered Syria. However, most of their army soon returned to the steppes following the death of the great Khan Monke. The Mamluks then invaded Syria. The Kingdom of Jerusalem publicly declared its neutrality in the Mamluk-Mongol War. However, the Franks allowed the Mamluks to cross their territories and secretly furnish them with supplies. On September 3, 1260, the Mamluks defeated a small Mongol force at Ain Jalut in the Jezreel Valley in eastern Palestine. The Mamluks portrayed Ain Jalut as the victory that saved Islam from conquest by the pagan Mongols. Afterward, they assumed the mantle of guardians and champions of Sunni Islam against all unbelievers. Under their great sultan Baybars, the Mamluks expanded into Syria, overthrowing the last Ayyubid rulers. They also continued to battle the Ilkhanate Mongols of Iraq and Persia. Yet the Mamluks could also never forget that the Crusader states had provided a base for assaults against Egypt. Baybars and his successors therefore renewed the counter-crusade. They methodically conquered the remaining Frankish strongholds. In 1268, Baybars captured the city of Antioch and massacred its population in the greatest bloodbath of the entire crusading era. The principality of Antioch was destroyed. In 1271, Baybars took Crac de Chevalier, greatest of crusader castles. The last remnant of the kingdom of Jerusalem, the city of Acre, fell in 1291. The victorious Mamluks then destroyed the coastal cities of Palestine in order to prevent future invasions from Europe. The Crusades were over. This concludes Hatin, Episode 3 of the Great Battles in History podcast. My name is Daryl D., and I would like to thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I would love to hear from you. My email address is greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. As always, I'd like to acknowledge the support of the Laurier Center for Military, Strategic, and Disarmament Studies. Particular thanks go to Sultan Kevin Spooner, Director of the Center, and to Mears Matthew Morden, Matt Baker, Eric Story, and Kyle Falcon. The next episode of the podcast will be on the Battle of Agincourt. I hope you'll join me.